Welcome to episode 15 of Chin Music. It's a podcast. It is presented by Fancrafts in cloudy and drizzly DeKalb, Illinois. My name is Kevin Goldstein, and joining me, the co-host here is not in New York. It's on the West Coast. He was with us for, he's a record holder. He's the co-host for the longest episode in Chin Music history. He's in San Francisco. He, he did the, uh, the, the the fantastic season preview with me, and he is the great of Fancrafts, Ben Clemens. Ben, how are you? I'm good, and it is sunny and like 63 in San Francisco. So, Lovely. same as always, it's great. That's it's a, it, that's great. It was it's been amazing here. It's been like 70s and 80s, but now it's like it's you know it's Illinois and spring can be a roller coaster. And now it's going to be like in the 40s and rainy for a couple of days. And that'll be 95 next week. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk baseball. Uh, our special guest this episode. So, I, booking guests is hard, folks. I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, and, and we had a guest talk baseball and, and they had a travel thing going on and then travel things happen and, uh, they can't join us. We're going to have a special guest, our first listener of the week segment. Um, back in, in my previous life, I also had a pad- podcast and, and we'll talk about my previous life in the viewer mail section. Um, and part of that podcast, we started doing listener of the week and we talked to some really fascinating people, um, who, one, the most famous and popular one was the Hawk Trap guy, which was a, a very strange person and strange. I mean, say strange in the most wonderful of ways who uh, trapped hawks at an airport in Alaska to keep the airport running well. Um, and also once spent six months on a boat picking up plastic garbage in the Pacific Ocean. Um, he was amazing. And he's still, I, he's he's something else. Uh, we had someone on who was uh, Lincoln Mitchell, who is one of the world's foremost experts on Georgia, the country, not the state. Uh, we had one of the top-rated Scrabble players in the world. We had interesting people and interesting lives, and, and I wanted to ask them questions. And and uh, it, I guess we'll, we'll we'll do a plug here. If you want to be the listener of the week and you have an interesting life, and want to come on the podcast, send us an email: chinmusic at fangraphs dot com. We need to collect listeners of the week. So when we can't have baseball guests, we have listeners of the week. And uh, ours this year is this week is someone who wants to remain anonymous because of the subject matter. And I, I understand that. Um, so Mr. X will be coming on and he is a public defender in a major metropolitan city. And we will talk to him about the world of public defender and uh, the law and things like that with someone who does is uh, in the nitty gritty of it all. Um, but first, we'll talk some baseball. Then we'll talk to our public defender. Uh, we'll talk about our musical guest with the highly commercial name of Cocaine Piss. I don't see uh, how they're not selling out arenas with a name like that. <laughs> they're they're fantastic. Uh, Belgian noise rock, which is you know, if you're going to have a genre, Belgian noise rock's right up there. Uh, we'll get into our emails, one of which is absolutely amazing. Uh, we'll catch up with Ben. We'll have our moment of culture, and then we'll be out of here. Uh, you ready to talk about baseball, Ben? Let's do it. Hottest team in baseball is Tampa Bay Rays. They're they're extremely hot. I mean, Rich Hill is pitching like six innings. I don't think he's done that since 
Didn't he go eight the other day or something? I think so. It's crazy. What do, do you? So so I, and I feel like this is like um I don't know this is this is a this is a blind spot in my mirrors if you will I, like I every year think the Rays are going to the year I think everyone's insane thinking they're going to be good um and then every year they're good and I'm wrong um like do you believe in this team ah uh, I mean I mean I think I picked them fourth in our season preview thing. <laughs> I think I picked them third or fourth. What a disaster. Um, do I believe in this particular team in the way that I believe in raised teams? I, I do think that, you know, somewhat strangely, the Adamas trade really improved them a lot. I, it might have improved their position playing core in addition mm-hmm. to improving their pitching. I, Adamas just, like, just was not... He was not working out there. And, like, I think getting him a change of scenery makes sense for everyone involved. I think that has made me believe in the Rays more, but I don't know. I look at this team and I'm still a little baffled. I'm still a little baffled. They have had so many pitching injuries and I don't know that like no offense to these pitchers, but a lot of them are not that good and, but they are that good. They're that good this year. And I don't know how they do it. Um, And, and clearly, and I, you know, I don't want to get into the narrative about the Rays quite yet. Like the, 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 the Rays remind me of, in some ways of, um, the Giants and the A's in a way that where they um, are, are consistently the sum is greater than the parts, if you will. Yeah. Um, they know how to mix and match a a lineup and a bullpen and things like that uh, in a way to really maximize what they have. And that and that goes well beyond just, um, you know, thinking about it goes well beyond just platoons like platoons are kind of simple. It, it, it goes well beyond it's it's about. You know, when when teams advance, Tim will get this also in the email. When teams advance, like it's more than just platoons. It's about you know this guy has trouble with sinkers here, and and we can you know if and, and there's two out of three guys that have trouble with this pitch, and if we end up in a pocket with those guys coming up, this is the reliever we go to. It's not just this guy's got the sixth, this guy's at the seventh. They have specific roles against specific parts of the lineup, and they do that with with their lineup as well, um, and putting the the right guys in the right spot, and. It's something they're really good at, and they get a ton of credit for it from a lot of the baseball media slash baseball Twitter world. Um, but like, do you? I, I I don't I I understand it. I don't. I first of all, you don't get an award for for wins per dollar spent. There's no award for that. There's no there's no prize for that. Nor there may be there. a championship belt. That's you know. yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> um, yeah. Nor should you. Uh, but like, like ever, I, I respect what they do, but I don't know if I respect how they do it. Like I, and, and, and this isn't the front office's fault. You know, I'm sure the front office would love to spend more money. This is all coming from ownership, but like, I kind of don't respect the race. And I, I think what they do, I, I think they're very good at what they do, but I think what they do is kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, I'm going to make this relatable by comparing it to the financial world, which makes everyone happy and just makes the analysis just perfect. And everyone will Every, love me for it. Right. I'm sure everyone loves talking about the financial world. Yeah. Um, I, that was, that was my former life. And there were people who were really wait, good. Wait, what, what'd you do? I, uh, was a, like an interest rate portfolio manager. And before that, a market maker at a bank. What is a market maker? So we, I traded interest rate swaps, basically like big clients would come in and we would, uh, basically buy or sell bonds from them. 
derivatives instead of bonds, but same basic idea, bet on interest rates going up or down. And we kind of stood in the middle and like uh, tried to make money by selling or buying, selling to or buying from people on demand. Like they'd ask us to buy something and we'd buy it from them. And then they'd ask us to sell something and we'd sell it to them. Okay. I don't understand any of this, but go on with your analogy. So there were people who uh, were really good at kind of like, like angle shooting and knowing all the corners and like, oh, like this thing's always the wrong price. And like, I can figure out why. And who were just very consistently make a, a steady, like stream of like small stream of money that they always pretty much made. And like, they were really good at it and it always worked. And so like, I think what I said, I, I believed in what they were doing and I'm not sure I really respected the way they did it. And that's right. kind of how I feel about the Rays where like, the Rays are better at this stuff than I am, than you are, than anyone is. Like, they're really good at it. They, they, they're fantastic at they, it. Yeah. They know the angles, and they develop new angles, and they work them, and it it works. And a lot of their angles, though, I just, like, I don't care about. I, I am aware that it's a good angle to basically, like, keep everyone down past the Super 2 deadline and trade your guys before they hit ARB. And, like, if you really want to win the dollar per war belt, which they have to because of their ownership, like you said, like, you have to do the things the Rays do. I, I get that. Like, they're not doing that because they think it's fun. They, they don't just love trading guys when they hit arbitration. But I do I think know. they take a. I, I do think they change. They take a strange pride in it, and maybe that's fine. Like I, I but I, I do think. I, I think they wish they had twenty more million dollars to spend. Yeah, I just like I. I believe that it works, and like you said, like they're doing smart stuff that I can't. Like you know, even after seeing what they do, I can't reverse engineer it. It's yeah, they're good at it. But uh, I don't know. Like, I don't want that to be a successful strategy in baseball. I think baseball has screwed up to make that uh, an acceptable strategy. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And and I and I I I hope I don't know how optimistic I am, I, but I still kind of believe that the next CBA will be focused on competitive balance in a way, and and more importantly, kind of incentivizing teams to put their best product on the field, which the Rays do. Like, it's just, it, I think they're going to be trying to um, raise the raise the bottom bar, which is what the Rays in terms of how you do this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Like, do you, I think the, the, the East is kind of, I don't know, you could argue the National League West too, but like the East has the potential to be like a really fun division all year now in the sense that the Rays are good. Let's just admit it. The Yankees are good. The Red Sox are kind of good. Um, and the Blue Jays are kind of good. And this could be, this could go all year. I think um, the Red Sox are like actually pretty good. And, and the difference is now is that the Yankees have money. The Red Sox have money. The Blue Jays have money. They all have things they could do in July while the Rays are going to, if they do anything um, in the deadline is whatever they do, it's going to be, severely limited by their financial status well on one hand yes on the other hand they might have the best addition to the major league team that anyone can make in wander if they actually yeah. do it right now they might want to get them below next year's super two deadline which would be i mean honestly outrageous they're not super two deadline but get him you know keep him down right, 15 yeah. days next year or whatever that would be I don't know. Like, it seems kind of silly. They're they're gonna have a new CBA in this off season, but I wonder it, if something like that would actually start to turn people against the Rays if they actually did that to Wander. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I'll believe it when I see it because they've done a lot of things that I thought would turn people against them. But they they've been less just like absolutely egregious about playing time manipulation than say the Cubs. So like the Chris Bryant thing is just I think that turned everyone against the Cubs so early that it was just always going to be a bad taste in people's mouths. And mm. you know they didn't have Kevin Mather go out and <laughs> say the quiet part really loud, uh, recorded on video. So they've they've kind of escaped. The worst of it, but I think if they did that to Wander, people might turn on them. Um, I mean, staying in the East, like the hottest team is the Rays. The hottest player is Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and it feels like a breakout. And obviously, he's you know his numbers are are among the best in baseball. Uh, but there's been a lot of talk about the Dunedin factor, and you know they're not playing in Dunedin anymore. The team's packed up and gone to Buffalo. Um, but his, his OPS in Dunedin was over 1400. Um, that's good, right? It's, that's pretty good. And then on the road, it was, you know, he was slugging under 500. Um, like how much of this is real? Um, I think a decent amount of it's real. I think so too, despite the home road thing. Like it's, if you watch some of those home runs, those are home runs in any park. Yeah. So I have here. A, like all the home runs that he hit and I watched them all before this segment and he had 11 home runs in Dunedin that's a lot of home runs this is a small park uh, yeah it plays small and he obliterated these balls right like, I'm looking down here and there's a a 461 a 465 a 436 444 like where are those not home runs I understand that there are atmospheric conditions that can make the balls not carry as far there's there's no way you can tell me that if he hits the ball 461 feet You'd be like, oh no! If we moved that to a regular park, it wouldn't be a home run. Yes, right? He, he had a ball that was, uh, I believe, it was one seventeen twenty nine in terms of <laughs> x velocity launch angle, and and that's yeah. that's go, that's going out anywhere. It's just maybe it's just it just happened at home and he was comfortable at home, or it's just like that's a roll of the dice thing. Yeah. Um, His numbers on the road are actually not bad either. No, like, they're not bad. It's just at home they're 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 completely insane. He's walking thirteen percent of the time, striking out fourteen percent of the time on the road. That's like. Yeah. You don't have to be that good at the other stuff. Yeah, he, he's he's something else, and it's interesting. He's an interesting like case study, and this is like this is the norm. Like people, um, and Alex Manoa is going to start pitching in a couple hours. It's Thursday afternoon. If you're uh, is when we're recording. Um, like this is the norm. Like even for elite prospects to come up and take some time to become what you think they're going to become, and you know it's it's. It took some time for him to, to become what he's going to come and adjust to major league pitching, but it looks like he's done it, and this is this is kind of real because the, the 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 underlying numbers be below the baseball card numbers are, are are highly supportive that crazy things are happening with Vlad Guerrero. Yeah, like I don't think he's going to keep hitting home runs at home. Fifty percent of his fly balls became home runs, and like okay, fine, <laughs> fine, probably that won't keep happening. Right, but his his everything looks good. Like if you just saw his road stats. You'd be like, oh, yeah, this guy's awesome. Like, he's yeah. mashing. And you can't just ignore the home stats. Like, he still put them up. He's he's walking, like, 17% of the time at home and striking out a lot less. Like, he's hitting a lot of line drives for doubles. And that's not a park effect. You know, if you smash a line drive in the gap, it's a double. I, I just think he's just, like, he looks pretty real. He's not going to yeah. put up the numbers that he put up in Dunedin everywhere. But, I mean... He's probably going to put up like top of the AL hitting numbers, top of the you know majors hitting numbers. It, it looks pretty mm-hmm. real. Um, you said you used to work in finance. 
and I, I I would talk about I guess this is a this is a money issue at its at its core because the reason this is happening is because of money and you can make money doing this, but I'm very confused about something. Um, and you're gonna try to help me with this. Ooh. Um, there are a lot of people who in this world who I really like, and I like them as people, and 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 I think that in general my worldview aligns with them, and. They are frequently uh, outraged and really angry and really upset about the infiltration, if you will, of gambling coverage um, in in the baseball media world. And, and we've all seen it. You know, we've all it's it's um, you know we, you now see the betting lines on the on the score ticker on the bottom of the screen. Um, I was maybe I'm daft, but I was really surprised. I had the network on the other day and all of a sudden they went to this betting segment with these two really annoying gentlemen who uh, were discussing like the plays of the day and the lines and this is what I'm playing and this is what I'm playing and thanks we're the guys from betbaseball.com or something I don't remember what it was um, very original name guys yeah they had boy they had um, they had the most annoying of energy and um, you know and, and we see it all the time now and and you know people talk about over-unders and and lines and and I'm saying this as someone who has bet on sports once in my life. I bet on a college basketball game that I knew nothing about because a friend, because I was in Las Vegas and a friend told me to. Um, that's the only time I've ever bet on a sporting event, and I so it's not something that's part of my life. It, and and these people are getting super upset about this stuff, and I look at it and I just kind of go, eh. and I just I just don't care. Like I'm not mad or not or unmad about it. I just kind of don't care. Yeah, and. Um, like if you want, to, and, and you know, and I and I tweeted something about this, and people were like, "Oh, we were mad about how it's just this constant part of the coverage." And I'm like, I don't know. I maybe, and maybe, first of all, maybe it's me because I don't, I don't watch a lot of non-game coverage, if you will. I just watch the game. Oh I yeah, I, 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 I don't, don't remember the last time of, I watched a pregame show. Yeah, I don't watch a lot of talking head stuff, and um, so I don't. Maybe I don't see that. And then you know, and someone else got back to me and said, you know, I was I had a gambling addiction problem, and this stuff's insidious, and and I get that. I'm also still. Um, I think gambling should be legal. I'm, I'm a person in general who thinks all vices should be legal. Um, and so I don't understand where the outrage comes from. And I know people talk, well, this could potentially lead to cheating and baseball's focused on the wrong things. They're going to be focused on, and the, on the money. And I understand, I guess, the fact that, you know, AP is going to have betting lines now. And, and the thought is that if they're in, you know, they're in, you know, the media's in cahoots with the gambling world, they won't, uh, be critical or, anything like that, if, if something happens and that if something happens, I, I always kind of go back to like, there's plenty of things happening to get mad about. You're getting mad about something that hasn't happened yet. I just don't have the room <laughs> in my, in my world for that. And we've also had, you know, we live in a world, not a country and, and sports gambling, legal sports gambling has been a huge part of Europe for decades. I was, um, I was thinking this is going to go somewhere different after you said we live in a world. Yeah, we live in a world. Um, and, and I don't. Do you understand the outrage here? Because I'm, I'm. I'll be honest with you. I, I get the points even, and I'm still just kind of, eh, whatever. I'm not. I just. I'm not worked up. Just like on a scale from zero to ten, I'm like a zero point three as far as how worked up about it is. I just. I, I don't pay attention to it, and it doesn't bother me. Yeah, I guess I'll do my full disclosure as well. Like, I definitely don't bet on zero games. Um, I don't really bet on baseball very much because I don't know. Like, that's work. <laughs> and it's like betting is like fun recreationally but i don't really want to do work when i'm not at work that 
it just feels like it stacks up if I do that. But, like, I, but you do occasionally gamble on other sports. Yeah. And, in a legal way, or, or have you done the like the bookie thing in the past? Um, I'm trying to think. In the past, yes, but basically I just bet with like one of my friends, and we'll bet on like, you know, I'm a Packers fan. He's a, I mean, I guess theoretically he's a Jets fan, but he'll pick some other team for the year, and we'll like bet on which team wins more games. Um, right. Yeah, and like, come on, I've been in a bunch of NCAA tournament pools and everything. Like, I, I think sports gambling is pretty reasonable, and I definitely think it should be legal. It, I understand some of the, the feeling around how weird it is that baseball is pushing it so hard. And like, I do think that you can say that's unsavory, right? Like it is a thing that people struggle with and there are people who have gambling addictions. And Mm -hmm. when the league and teams are really pushing gambling, that feels weird. Like maybe you don't want to do this for like the 10 year old kids who are watching your pregame shows. I'm not sure. I, I have no clue if there's some kind of age-related component to, like, gambling addiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would feel kind of the same way if they were, you know, like, touting weed stocks or something in the pregame show. I'd be like, well, that's that's weird. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm fine with those stocks being legal, but I don't really know that you need to bring in, um, you know, weedstockbets.com guys to talk about it. Um, Like, I think to the extent that there's a valid... Uh, like dislike with this it's either you just don't think gambling should be legal and then okay i disagree with you or you feel weird about the way that it's being commercialized by the league and i don't know like i'm probably the wrong person to ask about that but i would find it very weird if announcers started referencing the lines during games it would definitely take me out of the action a little bit um have I, you seen any? Have you seen that at all? Like during games, people talking about, oh, there's no, the two. It's a two-run triple for Akil Badu, and with that, the we're we're now over the over/under. We got eleven yeah. total runs. I, I haven't seen anything like that. He hit his total bases line, uh, right? You know, like the Al Michaels style. I know he like will soft mention point spreads when some team kicks a meaningless field goal at the end of a game. Oh, okay. Um, I've never seen it in baseball. I feel I feel like if it happened, I'd notice it and it would feel weird. Uh, baseball seems to have more of a anti-gambling worldview than other sports. I mean, I guess kind of because of the Black Sox. Like, yeah, you got nineteen nineteen. You got Pete Rose. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I I find it hard to be that outraged about it. I just don't think it's a bad thing to be legal. I do think it's reasonable to say it's so gross how how like I don't really know the right fancy word to use for how like money grubbing the league is around these kinds of things sometimes yeah i mean here's the there's the bad news folks um like you know and it's you know if you want to talk about nationalizing the sport or something i i'll have you on the show and 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 probably nod my head a lot but like baseball like we live in a world ben i don't know if you know this but and it's and and in this country it's it's a money-making world and baseball's a money-making business and they're gonna make money i i totally agree with you like like, look, we would just be complaining about another thing that they did if it wasn't this one. I I don't feel like, yeah, like, couldn't you just get angry about the fact that they sell beer at games? It's, I think. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. Like, yeah, it's, it's just very strange to me. I don't, I don't understand it. And I don't understand the outrage. And I feel bad. And I feel like I'm wrong. I feel like I'm sitting there going, what, what am I not getting? And you're not helping at all, Ben, by the way. Um. Like, what am I missing here? And people try to play to me and I go, yeah, I guess. But, like, even that's not moving the needle a ton for me. Yeah. I I think that I just feel like the American, 
like some people in America, but certainly not all, have a miscalibrated sense of like how insidious gambling is. There's a lot of stuff that we do allow that's kind of insidious, and maybe maybe you should be against all those too. But gambling just seems kind of low on the list for me. It's kind of a consenting adults thing. Like, I don't know. Like, if somebody wants to bet 50 bucks on a game, I am just totally okay with that. And yeah. is it kind of gross to me that the league is, like, leaning way too far into it and unseemly? Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, yeah, what I... what does the league not lean into in an unseemly way? Like, name one thing. That, right, that's going to make them money, so they're going to do it. I mean, yeah. it's it's a simple equation, um, and like you said, it's more than just it's. I mean, be outraged about how much you pay to park at the park. Yeah, you know, I mean, be outraged about that kind of stuff too. I I, I don't know. Anyway, you didn't help at all, Ben. That's my bad. <laughs> Let's talk about hats, baby. Uh, speaking of uh, crass commercialism, no, we're going to talk about the other hat gate. Yeah, I don't want to talk. Look, yeah, the, 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 those new era hats came out. They were ugly and they went away. And I don't know how, what else you want to say. Yep, that's the end of it. Um, so yesterday afternoon, in a, during a fairly um, nondescript uh, White Sox-Cardinals game, Carl Schrodon pitched really well, gave up a uh, – he made one mistake and Edmund hit it out. And then it kind of got away from them when the pen came in. But uh, in, into the ball game comes – uh, Gaia goes for the Cardinals, and I don't know if Tony La Russa said something or not. I still am not sure on that. Um, but the umpire came out and said, "Give me your hat," um, because yeah. he had a big smudge on it. Like I don't know, like every percent of pitchers have. Um, and it was a big smudge of of whatever he's going to put on his fingers to get a better grip on the ball. We all know what this stuff is. Um, but he took the hat. And, 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 you know, and, and it was, they said, you got to change hats. And, and Gallegos handed the, the hat to his catcher and, and the umpire's like, no, 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 we're taking the hat. And, and it's going off for yeah. inspection from the, the, the major league baseball hat police. And my first thought was, okay. Like I know people who are very rules oriented people and they're like, well, then it's, it's the rule. It should be enforced. And that's fine. Like, but if you're going to enforce this rule now. And we're gonna start taking hats when guys got a smudge of, of stuff on the bear, on the brim. Um, yeah, you're gonna need to order some more four hats, five, right? You're gonna be doing four or five hats a night. You're gonna have to hire a full time person at Major League in New York who just looks at hats all day. Um, and you're gonna start taking belts, and you're yeah. gonna have to start taking scrapings off of players' forearms. You're gonna need infielders' gloves too for when the ball yes. goes around the horn. Absolutely. And, and I, look, we all see it. Like, just watch the game and watch how many times a guy, you know, puts his hand to his hat to, to, to tack up his fingers. Or, um, the more frequent one, because guys know about the hat stuff is, is, um, sticking their thumb in their belt, um, and, and stuff like that. And, and, like, I, look, it's a rule and you can't do it. And, and so it got enforced. But, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want to use the word unwritten rules because that turns into just a very strange, moral thing which is a it's a you know the unwritten rules on that in in that world are very 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 dumb but like this is one of those things i guess the best way to put it is just for for literally decades now it has been decriminalized um and now all of a sudden this is happening um is this just my first thought was a did teams get a memo Right. Which, which happens like the teams get a memo, you know, from major league baseball saying, Hey, here's memo of the day. They happen all the time. Um, and this one's, Hey, we're going to start, we're going to start cutting down on this. Was this, uh, just Joe West being Joe West 
was this uh the empire decided to, to to enforce it once with the hope that it'll help you know they're not going to do it again but like it'll it'll be in people's mind now um i don't have a question here i'll yeah. sign the question where are you so like i'm a cardinals fan but i don't think i'm biased on this one at all gaigas doesn't seem like a bad offender of this <laughs> like as stains on hats go and as like frequent going to everything goes he's like middle of the road maybe below the middle of the road mm-hmm. um you know you can see his spin rate data from yesterday after they took his hat and his spin was down like 25 to 30 rpm and that's that may sound like a not a lot but it's really not um pitches it's not i mean yeah you're talking about things you're talking about things measured in the thousands yeah pitchers pitches get from the mound to the plate in like under a second and 30 rpm is 30 revolutions in a minute so, you know, it takes two seconds to make a revolution. So it's less than half of a spin of the ball. It's like literally nothing. Um, like, yeah, if you look at some of the articles that The Athletic did on how much like Pelican grip and all that kind of random, like actual really high grip stuff adds, it's in the 300, 400, 500 range. Right. So, yeah, probably, almost definitely. He at least had some sunscreen and rosin on there, right? Like, yeah, he had a, he had a, yeah, he had a, he had a, a smudge of stuff. Yeah, minimum. Whatever, whatever the stuff he prefers. But I can, without being in a major league clubhouse, I don't need to be. I can flat guarantee you that he's nowhere near the worst defender. Um, yeah, not I think close. Mike Schilt's rant was pretty much perfect. That like, I'm sorry, but if you're letting Trevor Bauer pitch, like, and you don't just take his glove and his belt and his hat every time he pitches, like, what are we doing here? Like, it, the inconsistent enforcement is, I think, worse than no enforcement. Because uh, so is the answer is is the answer no enforcement or full enforcement? So I would argue that they should like just make rosin and sunscreen and perhaps pine tar legal, and then crack down really hard, like real suspensions on like your various chemical concoctions that you do. I know that's hard to do. It's really hard to do, and 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 we've mentioned this before on the show, but like I mean, baseball has Major League Baseball has tried to for a while, produce a baseball that is um, is pre-tacked. Yeah. Um, Closer to Japan, I guess. Right. And and at the same time, like, I don't... I, I think it's fine you want to try that, but, like, at no point are pitchers going to be satisfied with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, I would lean closer to the no-enforcement side, to be honest. Uh, I am, too. Like, I, this is where it is, and, like, you know, people like, well, this is part of the reason pitchers are dominating hitters right now, and it's really not all of it. It's it's maybe a small part of it, but like I don't know what else you do here. I I I, I don't think it makes for an entertaining game uh, when we're pulling four hats off the field a, a day. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind if they do some kind of like random checks, not of pulling hats off the field, but taking balls that have been pitched like out of the game, sending them to a lab, and if you've got some like super weird exotic nonsense on there, then we have a talk. And if it's got some sunscreen and pine tar and rosin, then whatever. Like, this stuff does stick to the ball, right? It doesn't go away in one pitch. You can you can take a ball out that someone's used and doctored up and tell if there's something on it, kind of. Um, I mean, Eric may get mad at me for saying this, and so maybe you have to take this out of the podcast. I don't know. But uh, you remember when Bauer's yeah. spin rate jumped? Yes. Like, September of 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his starts was in Arizona. He was pitching against the Diamondbacks. And Eric was taking some high speed because um, I think Grinky was pitching on the Diamondbacks. Maybe he had no, he had been traded. I don't he remember who was gone. pitching on the Diamondbacks. Yeah, um, but he was there taking some high speed, and <laughs> you could just see the stuff on the ball. Yeah, 
like you could just see it it was it was just visible and yeah, it's not it was it, like the game when his spin rate just jumped 300 rpm in like like out of nowhere after he'd been a consistent level for you know four years then one game he's just like oh look i, I suddenly learned a thing that i've been on the record saying is unlearnable so like right there i think there's some level where you can go too far like there there's a real difference between like stuff that gets you a little bit of a grip and like going absolutely nuts manufacturing some concoction in a lab i don't think we want baseball teams like you don't want to totally decriminalize it to where teams can just be like literally having their own pitching lab to cook up the best stuff using physicists and everything that sounds mm-hmm. terrible to me I, I don't think i'm in for that but oh man like don't don't take somebody's hat off like <laughs> yeah and i don't think it's gonna be like i i, I thought for a second about like how you know managers will start using this as a strategy where well larusa has uh, you know been on the record as using it as a strategy in his previous stops for sure but like you know you're down 2-1 to the yankees the ninth inning chapman comes in you go hey go check his hat right you know but the problem with that is like if you're any of the 30 managers in baseball you know your guys are using it too right you know there's there's it's not like you're not coming in with unclean hands uh, to use the legal term um yeah and so it's just it's just gonna be a mess i don't think this is the start of something as much as it's yeah. kind of an interesting one-off I actually i don't think larissa did this to be clear like i don't I think, think i think just yeah i don't again i don't know if it's joe west just kind of improving or or if someone was told hey we gotta let's let's do one of these and see if it, it slows it down yeah i was i was curious at first just because he's been like so aggressively curmudgeonly recently mm-hmm. and but like <laughs> I don't know. Like, he would wait until a pitch was thrown, so you get the pitcher thrown out. And... Right, right, right. Yeah, I just, I don't know why Joe West decided to do it, or I guess he said the second base umpire saw it first. I don't know, like. But the second base saw it for the 700th time in right. his career. Has, has he Has he never, maybe he just suddenly stopped being colorblind or something. He finally started looking at hats. <laughs> yeah. He, he was still, thinking about hats because the new era ones. He was thinking about what hats look like now. And he looked at that guy's hat and he went, hey, there's something yeah. on that guy's hat. He's like, oh, I wonder if the Cardinals have area codes on their hats today. <laughs> so uh, speaking of spin, I want to talk about some work you did. Um, you think about baseball very differently than I do. And that's a good thing. Um, and, and in terms of, I guess, in terms of content creation, um, I think your stuff's really great. But like you, you, you know, I kind of... Well, when I'm thinking about what to write about, I kind of, my, the, my, my, my beginning point is the standings. Right. And then I look at the 30 teams and I go, oh, I, this guy is super hot. I want to go look at why. Or, wow, the Giants are in a weird place. I want to talk about the weird place they're in, in terms of their future. Um, and you do things like, I want to look at sliders for 48 hours. Um, 48 might be but, underselling it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't want to download 8 million pieces of data about sliders and think about sliders. Um, and, and you did that. So speaking of spin rate, I guess, is where I want to go into on the slider thing. Um, you know, sliders are much like four seamers have overtaken sinkers um, in terms of the, the, the fastball of the day. Uh, the breaking ball du jour is, is more slider than curveball because we've learned it's a power pitch and power pitches play better. Uh, but you spent 72 hours <laughs> looking at sliders and... Uh, like and you learn thing about sliders and you shared those 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 things you gained with our readers but what did you learn about sliders yeah so i I do want to preface it by saying i don't know if i actually learned anything i found some interesting observations uh and i think they can like teach you like 
oh, that guy's, like, this guy's slider works well, but it doesn't look good. Why? Uh, mm. I don't know if it's, like, uncovering any deeper truths or anything. But I do think it's interesting because I kind of come to, like, I didn't play baseball very long when I was a kid. I stopped in Little League. And mm-hmm. so I've, I hit a slider off a pitching machine once, and it was really hard to hit. But I don't really exactly understand, you know, what makes a pitch tick in a way that if you played through college or something, you would get better. Um, I, I was just very interested by like what makes sliders work. And it felt to me like sliders that were like in the zone or playing better than I expected. Mm-hmm. The batters just either take or miss them quite a bit. And so I thought like, I wonder if there's something to that. And I don't know if there actually is something to it, but a few findings that I thought were interesting were if you throw one of the really, really like frisbee-ish sliders like i mean chas Rowe is the the ultimate version of this but lots of guys throw these right that are more more left right than uh yeah sweepy yeah they're like sweepy they're probably a little less cuttery like not not quite as power of a pitch though still a power right. pitch slow sweeping slide yeah those the ones that manage to get a lot of like horizontal break like that run in to uh to opposite handed hitters run away from same handed hitters do much better when you can keep them in the zone. And I think the basic reason for that is if you start a pitch with that much hook on it in a place where it's going to leave the zone, batters just don't swing. It's clear early that it's not going to be a strike. Yeah, because it it just has a ton of movement to it, and it it's breaking like crazy, and I think that just makes it easier for the batters to stay off it. It, it starts in a position where it doesn't look like it's going to be a strike. Um, so when you have pitches like that, it seems like attacking the zone works a lot better with them. When you have, either if you happen to back a slider up, or if you just throw one of the the ones that are closer to a cutter, a little bit less movement, more of a power pitch, mm-hmm. those do a lot better on the fringes, and even if you, you miss a little bit. I, I was interested in that finding, because I'd kind of think that if you don't have much movement, and you, like, you know, throw it a little, like, throw it up low, <laughs> that sometimes people just won't swing, because it doesn't have that much movement, it just starts low. But it seems like something about those pitches, or and this could definitely be a selection issue, um, works a little bit better than the ones that are really bendy. And some of that is probably just that the ones that are really bendy and miss the zone are often just bounced or completely wild. Right. I, I did a, you know we did a lot of work on slider stuff when I was with the Astros, yeah. and, and actually, uh, like the two findings I got were a one that matches yours, which is like these big sweepers are very effective pitches. Yeah. These, these big horizontal sweepers, which have also kind of fallen out of favor with some, are actually very effective pitches. The other thing that was kind of even more, that was more interesting to me because it, it maybe goes against some, some common thinking or, or some things is just that um, you can throw what, what I always call a velo driven slider. Mm-hmm. And so if you throw an 88 mile an hour slider and it is a, again, I'm going to throw maybe throw a new term, it is a rifle spin slider. Yeah, I got you. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's like football spins, spin it's almost like a foot, like football spins or rifle spin slider. Yeah. And so it doesn't really move that much. It's not a huge breaker, but it's 88. That's actually a more effective pitch than a 84 mile an hour slider with respectable movement and spin. Like the velocity on a slider plays a very large role in, in its effectiveness. If, if you're not throwing these massive sweepers, these yeah. you know, Sergio Romo sweepers, um, that velocity can drive the success of the pitch as much, if not more, than as uh, than movement at times. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting and actually kind of in that vein is uh, if you look at velocity differential, 
there's less there than you'd think, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that does look not great is if you're throwing that 88 mile an hour slider and your fastball is like 91. <laughs> right. Or 92. Like if you don't have much velocity differential and you don't have much movement, I think that's maybe not great. Um, right. That's more of a problem. Yeah. So what I was doing was like bucketing it out by both uh, differential and then like uh, movement. So if you have something that's like within seven miles an hour of your fastball and it doesn't move much, like it has less than two inches of horizontal break, that's not a good pitch. Right. Uh, but if you start, if you can slow it down a little bit, if you have like a like a seven or eight mile an hour differential, even if you don't have a lot of movement and it's fast, that's still fine because like it's timing them. It's messing up their timing as much as anything, right? Yeah, and if you, if you threw a 98 and you could either throw an 84-mile-an-hour slider with decent movement or an 88-mile-an-hour slider with rifle spin, I'll take the 88-mile-an-hour one. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the data would bear that out, too, at least what yeah. I was able to find. But if it, it, it does, yeah. But if you could throw, if you were throwing 92, then I might err on the side of the 84 instead of Right, the then you need the, yeah, then you need the, 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 the speed differential. Yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting that some speed differential seems to be important, like like when I looked at just slider velo, I got very little, and I think the reason for that is because some of those fast ones are just not separate enough from the fastballs. And yeah, I always thought it was. Um, I never got conclusions, and uh, you know maybe we didn't put enough work into it. But I always thought it was kind of the great next step in. I've, and I've said this a lot, but like in terms of data and technology and understanding, pitching's way ahead of hitting. Um, which is one of the reasons we're seeing what we're seeing with offense right now. It's it's way easier to kind of maximize and 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 make pitchers better than hitters better. Um, but I always thought one of the great, and I know a lot of teams have have put work into this. I'm not sure how good their conclusions are or not, but was to to kind of get away from, and this kind of goes to what you're speaking about, to get away from judging pitches in a vacuum, right? Um, where this is a great fastball, this is a great slider, this is an average changeup. And being able to figure out a way to, to more accurately measure um, how parts of an arsenal can play up or down because of what else the pitcher can throw. Kind of these, these this uh, you know, the term I always use was arsenal dependency. Right. Um, so, you know, this slider is better for this guy because he has 98 in his back pocket as opposed to 93. You know, the, the exact same slider in terms of velocity and movement. Let's just say, say guys, this is a very normal... 83 mile an hour slider right yeah um that pitch is going to be a better pitch if the guy has 98 in his back pocket as a fastball and you that you have to gear up for as opposed to if a guy had average fastball velocity yeah that- um, even though it's the exact same pitch it's a better slider because of what else he has and that kind of pitch dependency i think is something that is, is still i think there's still a lot of research to be done there and i but i do think it's still it's kind of a an untapped area as far as as, as helping pitchers get better yeah i agree with that i think like i think that's very hard to research for us like uh i think it's hard i think it's hard for the private side idiots too (laughs) fair enough but uh there's definitely something there and one thing that i I remember looking at with ross stripling it's kind of similar to arsenal dependency and i mean Mm -hmm. i don't even know if it ended up working out for him but he basically started pairing his curveball off better against his fastball like getting their axes axes to mirror more and like making the movement look a little bit better and making the right. delivery look like making the motion in his hand look a little bit better and when he when he threw his like good curve that was 
like much more mirrored to his fastball. He was having much better results. And then if he got tilted either way, like on his axis, even mm-hmm. though it would look kind of the same on the metrics, it's like, oh, this, this still looks like the same curve. It's, you know, you know, it's got slightly different vertical movement, slightly different horizontal movement, but it's still got a bunch of spin and a bunch of break and it would do a lot yeah. worse. And mm. I kind of like left it there where I was like, no, this is complicated. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think that there's probably a lot of work to be done on that. And that's one thing that this, like, here's some grids of what sliders do, definitely misses out on. Yeah, and it, it's funny because, like, it, it's, you know, I know pitch tunneling became a big thing for a while. And, and um, I was never a big believer in that, having really moving the needle that much on a guy. Um, you did another piece, uh, uh, you know, classic Ben Clements world where you spent 72 hours looking at what happens when runners are on third base. Um, like what, what brought that on and what'd you find? Can we swear on this podcast? Jesus Christ. Have you, you, I, you don't listen do you. I've, I've heard like parts of some, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but just, you know, yeah, we have an explicit tag. You can just do that. You know, say whatever you want. So I was watching, and this is entirely my fault. I was watching an ESPN game with A-Rod broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that that's on me. And this was the, the Cardinals-Cubs game this weekend where it went to extras. The Sunday nighter. The Sunday nighter. Alex Reyes comes in and he goes, he ground out. Uh, Anthony Rizzo grounds out. Baez pops like a 400-foot home run to center, 450-foot home run to center or something. And then the next two batters walk. And A-Rod is talking about how the best at-bat of the inning was Rizzo. And four batters have come up and one of them made an out. And A-Rod said right. he had the best at-bat. And so the first thing I thought was like, oh, fucking A-Rod, like... Like, come on. Are you kidding me? Javi <laughs> <laughs> Baez hit a 450-foot home run off Alex Reyes. That's way more impressive. And, I mean, I guess maybe walking against Reyes is not more impressive because everyone does that. But Right. But I was just like, oh, my God. Like, And then he said, you know, because Reyes like couldn't bounce a slider. Now there was a runner on third. So, first of all, his first pitch to Baez was a bounce slider. So, like, just shut up, man. Like, come on. Like. <laughs> He was clearly willing to bounce the slider. The first pitch he threw, he bounced the slider. But then I thought, look, I, you don't get anywhere by just dismissing people's points without looking into it. Because what if he's right? Like, what if that really was really important? And what if Reyes is just kind of, like, unwilling to throw a pitch in the dirt? And that really helps Baez because Baez chases and so on and so forth. And I was like, oh, like, I should actually research this and just instead of just saying uh, fucking A-Rod and moving on with my life. Because that's not... I don't know. That's not a good way to learn things about the world. So I just like went and looked at what happens with runners on third because the more I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe pitchers really are just irrationally afraid of wild pitching a run in, even though it doesn't happen very often. Right. And so, uh, no, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) The the answer is that no, they're not. Uh, Because the thing about pitches that hit the dirt is they're usually breaking balls that are chase pitches. Yeah, And those are things that you throw when you want strikeouts. And the time that you want strikeouts is with a runner on third and less than two outs. And yeah. So it just turns into a wash. Yeah, it just turns it. Not only does it turn into a wash, but in aggregate, pitchers bounce more pitches with a runner on third than with a runner on second with one out. For the obvious reason, which is that like... They're strikeout. They're strikeout. They're, they're, they, they have to avoid yeah, contact. I, and like I'm sure that they're thinking like strikeout 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 right like of course right. you are it's a tie game especially in a tie game like you just have to get the strikeout with and especially when it's Molina behind the plate now he's gotten worse at blocking balls over the years but I'm sure that his pitchers don't think that 
Right. I'm sure that they think he's, you know, like literally the best catcher they could have back there to do this. And I don't know, like, it's just not a thing. So I kind of thought it that it might be there and that I might have been too harsh on A-Rod. The moral of the story is that, no, like, no, I, it, it was right in this case. Um, the lesson learned is that you were correct about A-Rod. Yeah, I don't think I necessarily learned that much about pitcher behavior with a runner on third. Like, they want to strike the guy out, and I knew that before. <laughs> it's good to get that reinforced, though, and to actually look at the, the, the stuff and go, hey, I'm right. Yeah. Um, I know it's more exciting to go, should I learn something? But it's also good to, oh, I, I'm right. Yeah. I think the one thing that is interesting is they don't strike out more batters with a runner on third and one out. And that's because batters also are, are know, trying to make contact. Agency. Yeah. Right. You don't get to pitch against like a, a batting machine that just takes the same swings with no one on third. Uh, Tom Tango published a thing recently that I thought was really funny and makes me like a little bit more annoyed every time I hear an announcer that strikeout rates used to go up with a runner on third and one out. Mm-hmm. And now they go down. Like batters have actually gotten a lot better at, yeah. at making contact when they need to. Like strikeout rates are lower with a runner on third and one out than they are in other situations. And that didn't used to be true. In the 80s, when all these dudes who are saying how terrible current hitters are at making contact were batting, they were bad at it. Like, those guys right. were not good at it. They struck out more with runners on third and one out. And now batters don't, even though pitchers are throwing, like, disgusting stuff that, like, none of these guys had a prayer at hitting. Uh, batters know this. They shorten up their swings. They really do. Like yeah. Baseball players are better than ever, folks. Don't 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 listen to people who talk to you about the old ways. Yeah, that, that's um, that was basically my takeaway from this. It's yeah. like, man, you, like, you, pitchers and hitters are yeah. really good. Yeah, I mean, you can say that the game was maybe more entertaining, and then you have a reasonable argument for it. But in terms of just actual ability, baseball players are better than ever. Yes. Um, we'll take a break on that. We'll come back. We'll talk to Mister Axe, our listener of the week, who is a public defender in a major metropolitan area. Uh, we'll come back and talk about our musical guest, Cocaine Piss, who you listen to a banger right now from. Go through your emails, moment of culture, all that good stuff. So stick around. Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. It's our first Listener of the Week segment for what I hope will be a number of Listener of the Week segments on this show. Uh, If you have lived a peppered enough existence in your life, you have dealt with police officers. And at some point, they may have said to you, you have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. If you haven't had a policeman say that to you, you've certainly heard it on various television shows. Our Listener of the Week is one of those attorneys appointed for you. He has been a public defender in a major metropolitan area. Uh, We'll define that as one with major sports teams uh, for nearly a decade. And so joining us from his luxurious accommodations and parts unknown, it's Mr. X. Mr. X, how are you? Uh, I'm great, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, 
yeah, this is a strange question, but how did you become a public defender? First of all, I'm going to assume you went to law school. You don't just apply for this job like on, uh, <laughs> you know, on on, on 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 LinkedIn or something. No, unfortunately, yeah, you do have to go to law school, which was uh, essentially the story. There was I graduated uh, undergrad in. 2009, which I don't know if you guys remember, was when the world economy collapsed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had a degree in literature and a degree in philosophy. So those weren't those weren't going to do you well in a good economy either, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I worked in a bar for a while, uh, and then I went to law school, and it became it came became relatively clear that, especially given uh, the economy you kind of have to specialize relatively early. Um, And I just happened to go to a law school that had like a really strong focus on uh, uh, public service. So I did a lot of um, that kind of work when I was in law school. I worked for, I had a fellowship with uh, an innocence project. I uh, worked, um, I did like a clinic that sort of taught you best practices in uh, indigent defense. And so, yeah, it was just sort of the, it was the thing I was most, I applied uh, everywhere. I applied nationwide. So, and I just ended up at the office I'm at. And so, so, you by doing public work, was like, was this what you wanted to do coming out of law school? You're like, I want to be a public defender? Yeah, no, absolutely. I knew that probably from the uh, second, or gosh, I guess it was, yeah, the first semester. And so, I, I, I like people go from public defender onto other things. That, that's seen as like a stepping stone in general yeah. in the industry. Correct. When am I becoming? When you're going to ask, when am I become a real lawyer? No, no. I'm just asking. Like, <laughs> is this what you want to do? Like, you want to do? You, is this is like? Is there a, is there a path from here? Is like, no. I was I wanted to be a public defender, and that's what I am. There are certainly there are certainly people that are lifers, and it is a as you can imagine, sort of an extraordinarily difficult thing to do for a long time. Yeah. Um, especially if you're dealing, dealing with, like, what we would call them around here major felony work, um, sort of the, may- the mayhem stuff. Mm-hmm. So I uh, – one, one of the incentives I've received is the, the, the federal government came up with a program a few uh, years ago that if you work in a public service job for 10 years – They'll forgive your student loans. Ooh. So most people are, are I think for the most part, most people are trying to do it for at least 10 years. Um, and then and then sort of see where they are. So I'm not a line PD anymore. I'm one of the supervisors. Um, I still have a caseload, but I, so I still represent clients. I have a jury trial like next week. So, um, but I'm not, I'm not in major felony land anymore. I supervise one of our, our lower divisions. So... Uh, I, it's, it's a little, it's a lot less stressful for me than having to, you know, carry a, a major felony case left. So a, a, a good friend of mine is a, is a criminal defense attorney, private. Okay. Um, and, uh, I do, I like talking to him talking to him about his cases. Um, but he often says to me stuff like, yeah, this is, we're never going to go to trial here. These guys just want, they're so overworked. They have way too many cases. They just want this out of the way. They just want to be able to move the file from the inbox to the outbox because they're so overworked. Um, do you agree with that assessment? It truly, truly depends on your jurisdiction. Um, and it depends on where you're practicing. I'm in a, in a extremely fortunate, uh, position given 
the uh, scheme that we have um, in the way that our municipality and the state we practice in, sort of how they fund our public defender agency, uh, we are, I mean, we're overworked and we're not paid enough, but we're not in in that we're just we're we're deluged right um especially as you advance within our agency uh we have like a set number of cases we can be assigned per year um and if we go over that we lose an amount of funding and as you get as you advance and sort of start handling even more serious cases um you can't take more than basically a hundred major felony cases so a year, which sounds like a lot, but, you know, some of those are like, you know, those are like, that's like two or three murders and then, you know, two or three big sex crimes and then like a lot of like, you know, carrying a handgun for the second time. Right. right. So it's a lot, it's a lot less, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a less of a time commitment. Which, and who gets the overflow? Well, we, honestly, we, we have to, we have to keep enough attorneys that the overflow, there isn't any. Mm-hmm. But but some some metropolitan areas do actually bring in private defense lawyers to handle overflow, right? Yeah. So I, my example, friend has taken on some cases like that. Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of jurisdictions. So I I practice in the Midwest, and I can speak specifically to like even Ohio. I know um, is they they their agency like I the I know for just an example the Cincinnati agency, or if you guys listen to. Uh, the serial podcast that was about the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a pretty good example of like how public defense work works in, um, in Ohio. So it's mostly contract attorneys, which means private attorneys taking PD cases. They're either paid by the hour or they're paid by the case. And as you can imagine, that doesn't lead to the best outcomes for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, because then they do have an incentive to move cases or they, right. ins- or they have an incentive to dither around on cases, depending on, on how they're, on how they're paid. Um, we don't have that incentive. We're all, we're all salaried. So, um, we try, we try to do, uh, what is called a client centered representation. And for, we're one of the better offices in the, in the country, I would say. So you said you oversee a group of, of, of public defenders. How many people are in that group? Um. Well, okay. I am just roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not. I'm. So I'm like the middle management. So I'm like I have a boss above me, and then another person I work with, and then below us are probably about thirty-five attorneys, roughly. So how how do the cases get assigned? Like you know, we it does it, if. I, I've I've been in a courtroom and um, <laughs> you know and, and and but like you have all those you have those days in the courtroom and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about but like you just kind of show up and they just start uh-huh. ripping them out and and most of it's the stuff that happened last night um, and then you know you're just there maybe for a status but um, you know, they start ripping them out and like hey you've been charged with this how do you plead can you for an attorney find one will be assigned to you does it just kind of like well you're up Bob. You know, and, and this one's yours and next, okay, that one goes to Bob. Okay. This person needs an attorney. That one goes to Jane. Or is it, or is it more, is there any sort of context? Like this, yeah. is, this guy has been charged with felony robbery. You handle those cases, Bob. You're the felony robbery guy. Or, or, or is it just like, it's your turn? Again, it just depends on the scheme and depends on jurisdiction. I know that at the Louisville Public Defender Agency, I don't know if they do it like this anymore. They used to. 
the day you came in, the day you walked in the door, you could walk in and get a, a misdemeanor theft or you could get a murder. Uh, we don't do it like that. Again, we have separate divisions that handle... So we have a misdemeanor division, we have a lower felony division, and we have a major felony division. Okay. And so if you're in the misdemeanor division, then yeah. It just basically, is it your turn to get a case? Um, if, it, if, if we're appointed, that's your case, and you handle it. Um, same thing with lower felony. Major felony does get a little more specialized. So everybody, so here's the scheme, basically the way we do it. You're assigned to a court or two. Um, and then within that court, you are part of a general rotation of cases. So in major felony land, which again, which is sort of the most, is the most important one, um, there will be a separate rotation between murder, sex crimes, um, and then just general other cases. And then specifically breakdowns between seriousness. So between, you know, you can't get, so one guy can't get all the, the level one attempt rob or attempt murders or whatever. Um, so that's the way they sort of try to keep it up and, and, and make it as clean as possible. Now there's some supervisors in those major felony courts that have like a half caseload, but they tend to get the more complicated and or uh, difficult cases. So you, you mentioned this, this hundred, this hundred case load. And I think a hundred cases is a nice even number for my question here. Yeah. Of those hundred cases that you might get in this, in this more nasty world, um, how many of those hundred cases will actually go to trial on, on in general? Um, that's interesting. Uh, I would, I would think somewhere between go to, go to trial, which could be jury bench and I'll throw motions to suppress in there. I would probably say 10 to 20 maybe. And the rest will get. Plead we'll out, usually, we'll usually, plead, 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 plead out, or or, or for or one reason, for, for one reason or another, dropped. Yeah, they could be dismissed. Um, so you know, obviously, you know, you are working for, uh, for the government. Yes. Um, but your job is to defend people against the government's case against them. Yes. Um, that's a weird dichotomy, no? No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's, no, that's fine. That's why I want to like, yeah. you, I mean, you are, you can't allow any of this to play any role like this. The, the, the people paying your checks are nonetheless your opponents across the bench, right? No, no, kind of. I mean, well, okay. So let me put it this way. Yeah. Like I am, uh, I work for my County technically. Right. That's but so, but the people pay, trying yes. to prosecute this person are getting paid by the same person paying you. Yeah. The taxpayers, I guess. Um, but I don't, I can't, I don't think about it that way because I work for my clients, mm -hmm. right? And this is something that is sort of fundamental to the job and it, the job doesn't work unless you can really understand it. Like I don't work, I don't work for the state. I don't work for, um, really anybody except for them. As long as I'm not doing something that's going to put my law license in jeopardy. So... When you, when you're appointed to me, it's just, it's just like if you would hire me, right? Mm -hmm. I have a, we have a fiduciary, I have a fiduciary interest in representing you and doing what's best for you in the case within, you know, whatever rules I have to follow. What's your fiduciary interest? 
Well, I may may not have said I may not fiduciary might be the wrong word. Um, You've a vested interest. I've a well, I have a I have a responsibility to to zealously represent my my clients and mm-hmm. and to and to not harm them in any way. So enact again in, in what their stated interest is. Now notice how I said their stated interest. Their stated interest may not always be what I believe their best interest is, but if they tell me they want to do something, I have a responsibility to do that. So uh, my friend, who's a criminal defense attorney, we we talk frequently, and 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 we you know we text a lot, and he's like, oh, I'm getting on a plane, I'm going to Mississippi for a case, and I, and I and I'll go, what's the case? And he'll tell me, and I'll go, thank you, I'm not going to sleep for the next three days now. <laughs> and um, you know, when someone comes in who uh, has done something uh, ugly, has you know has done a a violent act against another person or something even more depraved um and and the person is you have no reason to believe this person did not do this Uh um this is a bad person who did a very bad thing um it is still your responsibility to defend this person yeah and to and to provide them with uh the best defense you can uh do you ever walk away with weird feelings about that do you, i mean do you like i mean do you ever walk away where like i know this is my job but I, I hate this person and i hate what this person did so okay so let me i get this believe me I, this question has been asked me before and i'm sure and so i have sort of a pat answer but i won't i will i hopefully don't i can get away from it a little bit i just want to preface it by saying the vast majority of people that i have represented at any level are either poor or sick right and so that means they're either they have an addiction issue or they have a mental health issue and it is our society's failure at large that the only way we've decided to help these people is by shoving them through the criminal justice system which is a i would like to i mean it's a blunt instrument yeah there's not a lot of room for nuance there aren't a lot of options and so we have to do the best we can and a lot of times there's not much we can do that said to answer your question, it's extremely rare that I have um, dealt with, with, and for the most part, men like that. And I could probably count on my hand the kinds of, the kinds of people that really gave me the, the willies. This guy's evil. Yeah, like maybe two guys that were mm-hmm. like that. And for the most part, you know, I've one of those guys did did, and I would if we were in if we weren't on a podcast, I'd be happy to tell you the facts, and they were <laughs> horrific. One of the just horrific, and you know, we took it all the way to trial. I probably worked a hundred hours on the case, and I worked really hard for him. And you know what? He went to prison. Um, they tend to sort themselves out. Is what is how I've experienced at least. Um. That said, like, I worked as hard for him as I'd work for anybody. Um, How would you have felt if that person got off? <sighs> you did your job. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't have felt, this sounds terrible, I wouldn't have felt bad. Yeah. Right? Um, I've, I've defended people in situations that, where I've won, and it was... I mean, and it was a serious, I mean, a serious crime. 
and unclear what exactly happened. But, you know, that's not... This is, like, part of it, too. It's like, that's not something I can... I have to... I can dwell on, right? Like, I'm there to... But you're not... But but it's not dwell... It's not, this, this is a tough question. Like, is not dwelling sure. on it just a defense mechanism or, or is it just how you have to go about it if you want to live, if you want to have a somewhat normal life? I will say this. I have an extremely normal life, right? Like outside <laughs> of, no, truly outside of work. I like, I come home, I have like a cat. She's very nice. Um, I have a, I have a loving wife. Um, we have a, like a very nice life and you know, I, I, just try to work as hard as I can for my clients, and I try to um, do do the best I can for them. And if I do the best I can for them, you know, there's another there's another party in the courtroom too. Is the thing right? And when it's working, and it's working at its best, you know, it's two extremely prepared attorneys hashing it out, and usually it. it 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 works out at least at the at the higher levels at the lower levels it's kind of more of a one it's more fun because you know the stakes are so much lower yeah uh, you mentioned earlier that like you know the the term used was a blunt instrument um, yeah and you know there's obviously been um, a focus over the past twelve months but obviously discussions longer going back than that about um, defunding the police and things like that and you know I've seen situations where the obvious thing that's going to happen this i'll give you an exact you know an exact problem um there was a person around here um walking in the middle of the street who was clearly having um a mental health issue sure um we all know it's going to happen which is someone's going to call the police that's not what has to happen what has to happen is we need to have some sort of situation where you don't call 911, you call 611, and you get a social worker out to this person. Yes. Um, is there something that can happen in the in the real world, in reality, where we stop using this blunt instrument for all the wrong reasons? Um, you know, like you said, you have a lot of people who are stuck in the system because they have mental health issues as opposed to them being bad people. Um, like, is there anything realistic we can do to change that blunt instrument from being used so widely? Well, do you want to, do you, do you want to like completely, uh, like change the way society works? Cause that's like part oh, of it. God so much. Okay. Uh, but, but, but I mean, I'm talking like, I think it's, look, I, you know, I don't, I, often wear my politics in my sleeve. I don't, I don't hide the fact I'm a leftist, but, um, you know, in a realistic world, are there things that can happen? Like, like, are there realistic solutions? I mean, I think it's good to aim for that big picture stuff, but like, are there, are there smaller steps that actually could get through whatever necessarily government process to, to be implemented that would help avoid this, you know, Things getting taken care of in an arena that should not have responsibility for those things. So I think the the way to frame the conversation, to start at least, is by admitting that what the police do now, they're shitty at it, right? Like, these guys shouldn't be, they're doing too much stuff, 
They shouldn't be dealing with mental health crises all the time. They shouldn't be dealing with addiction. They shouldn't be driving around pulling people over for no reason, looking for drugs. So they're they're really good at some stuff. And if they had more research and time or more time and uh, you know were reallocated their resources, they would probably be you know solving a lot more murders. But that said, the first thing if you made me uh, and I know if I don't know if there's an incremental answer, um, but the first thing you you could do and I know Portland, Oregon has done this is they decriminalize narcotics. Start there. Stop stop treating addiction like a crime. Start treating it as a health crisis, which is what it is. The second thing you could do, potentially, um, is, and this like would require an investment in healthcare that I'm not sure this country is interested in doing. Yeah. Um, because if you have sort of universal access to healthcare and it's well funded, you can find you can find better places for people. Who are having mental health crises than the county. So these things, these things don't happen in the first place where the cops have to deal with them. Yeah, yeah, because they shouldn't be. Like that, again, I, there are, in my experience, I have met a lot of cops. A lot of them, as you can imagine, are real pieces of shit. But some of them are like extremely good guys who just want to help people and find themselves in difficult positions because they don't have the tools. So it, it's, it's a, you, you kind of, again, have to re- rethink the system from the ground up. Um, and it involves uh, sort of a, a structure that it just doesn't exist right now. Um, uh, you know, another thing that gets talked about a lot in terms of, of criminal justice reform is the prison system. Um, for a quote-unquote first world country, we incarcerate like no other. Um, and then, you know, without it getting into the kind of the disgusting world of the private prison systems, um, is there, are there changes that should be made there? Do you, do you believe that there are, you know, reforms that could be made in terms of sentencing, um, that are better than just, you know, putting a guy in a concrete box for three years? That's, that's above my head. I'll tell you, I don't know. Um, it's it's probably um, and you could probably find somebody somebody who knows more about it than I do I, I don't know um, you, you talked about you know the fact that like you know only let's say 10 to 15 percent of these major cases are actually going to go to trial where a, a, a judge or a jury makes the decision um, and most of them are going to get worked out beforehand yeah. um, and talking to my friend again at the criminal defense, it's the same thing like very few of his cases go to trial at some place, the point you, you reach some sort of agreement. Um, you know, it's, I imagine it's always a difficult decision with your client to say, hey, I know you don't like this, but this is probably your best outcome. Um, like, how do those conversations go and how do you convince someone who really wants to fight but probably isn't in the best position to fight because of the, the quality of their case that this is their best outcome. This is way better than what the most likely outcome is if we go to trial. It's a, as I frame it, almost always, I talk about it in terms of risk versus reward, right? You know, if I can say, hey, I've got this plea for you, it's for a year probation. If you do some community service work, you know, they'll they'll terminate the probation. Um, Versus if you take it to trial, 
you could be looking at two years probation, right? And this is the this is the case against you. This is what we'd argue. Um, and given my experience, this is what I would anticipate happening. Uh, and again, I kind of leave it up to them because it's not. Again, I is another cliche that we use all the time. I'm not the one doing the time, right? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. going home at the end of the day, no matter what. Uh, Hopefully, so, oh, well, for the most part. Uh, so it's 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 their decision, and all I can do is advise them. Truly, um, you know, that's where the counselor part of of being a lawyer comes from. Is I can just give them my my best advice and sort of and let them decide. So this is, I guess, kind of similar to that, but how much? Presumably, you get to know a decent amount of the DAs. Like, how much does that identity, like, are there good DAs and bad DAs to do a case against, as it were? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, the most prosecutors, um, the bad ones, can be grouped into, uh, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but you know what? Fuck it. You're Mr. Uh, X. I'm Mr. X, in from Parts Unknown, uh, are either... Lazy, incompetent, or stupid. One of the three. And those are the bad ones. The good ones are none of those things. The good ones are, you know, thoughtful, competent, and smart. And those are the ones that usually you can work stuff out on. Um, You know, trials are a lot easier. But you can deal with two out of three on on any prosecutor. But if you have one that's all three, and there's a couple, there's a few out there that exist. The worst people in the world. Just, just the worst. Yeah, it's it, no, it's interesting. I, it, it's I was just struck a chord from a personal experience where my attorney said to me, "Yeah, this guy just this guy just doesn't want to prosecute you. He just wants to this. He just wants this out of his way. We'll, I'm sure we'll work something out." And we did. And this was you know twenty something years ago for a disturbing the peace charge at a protest. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, but it, you know after the very you know before we even had our first trial thing he's like I already talked to this guy he doesn't want to deal with this case he he, he doesn't want to prosecute he just oh, yeah, like, definitely. yeah we'll, sure. we'll work something out we just want this over with um but so you know in your world I guess this is, so you're two years away from having your student loan taken away or or, or being you know taken away yeah. for you because you've done your you've done your time if you will in your public li- service your, your lips to God's ears yeah um what is the uh, is there a shortage of public defenders does everyone want to be a public defender it's like i i imagine it's one of those jobs where like tons of people go to law school thinking they're going to make a hell of a lot more money than you're making right now uh, you know does does the pay keep people away or or is it are you well stocked with with just decent human beings who have that public service interest so it's the pay is a problem even even uh, even for our agency, which again is better than most. Uh, it's just you can you can just make a bunch more money uh, and not have to deal with uh, just sort of the secondary problems of the of you know having to talk to crazy people all the time or having to go to the jail all the time or you know getting yelled at all the time. Um, and you can make more money and, and do something easier. So that's that's part of it. And then just like having a major felony caseload, even though it's not as bad as um, some of the horror stories you hear out there, it's just psychologically taxing. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just, again, mayhem. It's just dealing with the mayhem every day. And that's the same thing for the prosecutors too. 
um, really good prosecutors, they they have a, a similar attrition rate. You just have everybody for the most part. Some don't, but everybody sort of has an expiration date. And when it hits, you just got to you got to go do something else. Do you have an ex- do you have an expiration date in mind? Um, probably. And what's your something else? Well, I have, you know, I could go into private practice. That's always an option. I could go be, you know, a criminal defense attorney just around town. I'm really good at my job. Um, so I don't think I'd have a hard time catching on somewhere. Uh, but, you know, I could go, I could probably get on the bench maybe, potentially, um, if that was something I wanted to do. Be a judge. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Um, and I don't know. I can maybe go into. I can maybe go into civil work. I'm not sure, uh, but I haven't really uh, looked into that as much. But um, I don't know when that is. I think. I think I've been pretty. We. I've had pretty candid discussions with my wife after after the ten year mark. We're gonna have to sort of sit down and reevaluate where we are and where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Um. I. You know. I. I Again, just to continue back to my friend, like he, he, you know, just as his core set of advice, like what's your advice to somebody who finds themselves in trouble with the law kind of uh, both immediately and long term? Don't talk to the cops. (laughs) Um, There's nothing you can, if you're getting arrested, there's nothing you can say to get out of it. Um, and a lot of times people will sink their whole case with a bad statement, um, especially if it's something serious. So the trick is... Even is if like, you didn't do it, don't talk to the cops. God, fuck no. Never talk to the cops. One weird trick, um, because here's the thing. You can always talk to the cops later, right? After you talk to your lawyer, with your lawyer present, you can clear stuff up. You don't have to do it night of, you know? Say you want to... If you get arrested... Say you want to talk to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. That shuts it down. And anything that happens, if they do try to get you to talk and you do talk, it's very easy to exclude it. So if you get arrested and they're, they want to talk to you and you don't want to talk, say you want to talk to your lawyer. Um, then, I don't know. Uh, long term, that's, that's sort of tough. I don't know. Hope, you know, get a good attorney. Like well, that, see, it's, it, well, you just said that. Like this is this is. Here's my uncomfortable question. Sure. Should you hire an attorney, or should you be comfortable with a public defender? Oh, here's. Oh, I tell this to everybody. If you can afford to hire an attorney, hire an attorney. Okay. Right. Like, I'm a I'm a great lawyer. And, I'm, I mean, I'm a great lawyer, and you would be in excellent shape if if my if your file came across my desk. That said. Just hiring an attorney, like, they've just got more time and they've yeah. got more resources. And, like, you're going to have, even if you have the best public defender experience, if you have a good criminal defense attorney, you're going to get that anyway. And also, it's just going to be, like, the system's not built for that, right? You can't, if you if you can hire an attorney and you're not, you're being, you're, you're sort of taking a, I'm trying to think how to put it, um, you're taking a benefit away from someone else who actually needs it mm-hmm. well mr x i want to thank you for coming on and talking about the law 
No, uh, you are my first, pleasure. You are our first listener of the week, and what I hope will be a, a series of many more listener of the week segments. Uh, it was really fascinating to talk to you, and and and, and thanks for educating our audience. Um, I would ask you if you have anything to plug or where people can follow you on Twitter, but we're not going to do that. We um, gave the game away. Yeah. I guess the best thing to simply say is keep up the good work and thank you for doing it. Thank you. I'll plug this. If you get a jury uh, jury summons, I think that this this the, the people who listen to this podcast are jurors I'd want. So show up, <laughs> show up for jury duty, people. I did. And then I, I had to ask. Last time I got jury duty was like uh, two years ago. And, and I went, I showed up and the trial was going to happen in five days. And I kind of raised my hand. I said, I'm flying to the Dominican Republic in three days. And the judge said, why? I said, to watch baseball players. And he said, <laughs> and he said, he said, isn't this more important? I said, no, it's for work. And he said, what are you, a scout or something? I said, yeah. And he said, I don't believe you. <laughs> and, and I had to prove it to him. <laughs> why would you come up with such an outlandish story if you really just it want out? It was true. Yeah. And he let me go. Well, there you go. That's great. <laughs> but thanks again, Mr. X, and, and uh, maybe we'll have you on again as our legal expert should we have the need. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, use Charles. Use Charles for civil stuff. But I can I can answer any criminal questions. <laughs> thanks again. All right. Cheers. back to the podcast uh you have been listening to the amazing cocaine piss uh we'll just read straight from their bio ben well you won't i will uh Uh, listen straight from their bio (laughs) you can't start a band called cocaine piss and be serious all the time it would be the equivalent of naming your kid something like kick me in the head throughout life whenever possible smith it's not exactly the best commercial boost to a new thing but ever since coming into twisted existence in 2014 in the belgian city of liege Pretty much as a bad taste joke, Cocaine Piss never really had time to consider such fine details, like having a band name you can safely say in public, or just having any kind of plan for anything. They just revved the engine of the piss rocket, watched it launch, and before they knew it, it was flying sky high. Pretty soon, the band became an important name in the Walloon alternative rock scene, not because they held serious meetings with important people, or because they meticulously traced a conquest schedule of their spreadsheets. 
the band's method has always been showing up and whipping up a chaotic mess with their high-octane blend of punk and noise that's all over within 20 to 25 minutes. It's like Dead Kennedys, Bikini Kill, and Melt Banana all playing at once while really high on their namesake substance, right up until the venue cuts the power and everything's suddenly over, leaving you euphoric, disoriented, and punching walls just for fun. The atomic energy of their hit-and-run shows inevitably started to get some attention from bookers and press within the splash zone of Flanders and the Netherlands, and so, like a crass joke you can't stop from spreading, cocaine piss started to spread their fluffy wings across Europe, too. Um, they became even bigger in Europe. They've, they've played hundreds of gigs all over, uh, everywhere. UK, Norway, Portugal, Lithuania. Um, and their last two albums have been recorded in Chicago with a friend of the podcast, Steve Albini, uh, including their most recent one, Passionate and Tragic, which is what you're listening to tracks of, of this episode. Um, I think one of their favorite, my favorite lines in their bio is cocaine piss are a great example of the many things you can accomplish while not being an asshole. Uh, their music might be nasty, provocative, dirty, and mean, but their message is always positive, one that should leave a mark as deep as their riffs will cut. Uh, gender equality is the main thread of their work, and they always make it a point to collaborate with young and promising people. Uh, great band, great folks. They are on Hypertension Records. If you want to uh, go buy some of the music or listen to more, go to cocainepiss at bandcap.com. And thanks to the wonderful people at Cocaine Piss for letting us play their music on the podcast, and I hope you all become, like I have, a big cocaine piss fan. It's just fun to say. It's fun to listen to. <laughs> so, uh, you ready for emails? Let's do it. We have a lot of emails, and the last one's a doozy. But we'll start with Jack. These are all good. First of all, all our emails are good, but we've got a doozy. These are all equally good, but the last one is more equally good. It's something else. But if you want to send us an email, please do. You guys have been doing, guys and gals, doing great on the emails uh, lately. Keep them coming. It helps make the show better. It is chinmusic at fangraphs.com and again if you'd like to listen to the week subject and you have an interesting life and think you should be a listener of the week let me know there uh chinmusic at fangraphs.com and this is always the point where i say if you listen to us on some sort of apple device please rate and review the podcast it helps us and i can't explain how our first email comes from jack jack says hey kevin love the podcast love the fact that you listen to the podcast jack i know it's probably boring for you to talk about but i always love hearing origin stories how did you get into baseball? How did you become an executive with the Astros? Did you work for other teams before? Houston, thanks so much. This was a really good reminder to me, Ben, that I disappeared for a long time and a lot of people don't know about me before I disappeared. I always assume like I was coming in and people knew the story and they don't. And this was I, so I appreciate Jack's email. So I'm going to ramble for a second, Ben. That's what we're here for. We're going to do that. The podcast is always over two hours for a reason, folks. Um, So this is the very Cliff Notes version of the origin story. And for people who don't know, I guess, I think it would be good for them as well. So um, I spent the first half of my adult life working in tech. Um, I did not go to college. Um... I started working for a big six consulting firm in like system administration and things like that uh, at 17. Um, I was the national system administrator for a big six consulting firm when I was 19 um, and did tech stuff. Uh, I'm also an old person. And so during that time, the internet became something and I really thought the internet was cool. And I started to work for internet companies. I worked for the second internet company to go public, a company called Spyglass that did uh, browser technology. Um, and then I kind of 
set off on my own and was doing uh, lots of tech consulting and always loved baseball and always loved kind of prospects and, and that side of baseball I was a big baseball America fan and um, worked for stats Inc for six months that were absolutely fucking miserable. Um, but met Jim Callis there and Jim hooked me up with the baseball America people. And if you went to the first baseball America website in the late nineties, when, when uh, years began with one and remember like kind of the green and gold, I built that. Um, and as part of that, I got access to the data feed for the minor leagues from a company called House Sports Data. And this, is, cool. this, this might sound insane, but there was a long time where minor league stats and minor league box scores were not on the internet ever, anywhere, literally nowhere. And the only way to keep track of how players were doing was through Baseball America every two weeks printing the stats. That was it. And that, I, it, I, it sounds like caveman days, but it really was just 20-something years ago. But I had access to the feed. And so I started for me and some of my baseball friends this thing called the the prospect report. And it was just a daily email of what happened last night in the minors and talking about players. And and this is like it was literally almost like just a list of players and holy shit, this guy went three for five with two doubles and a home run. It was listing kind of what prospects did if they had a notable game. That was it. That was the sum of it. And um it got a couple of people like Jim Callis mentioned it in baseball America and uh, Ron Chandler mentioned it in baseball HQ. And it got a couple of mentions here and there. And all of a sudden it had like 500 subscribers to this thing. And it was very strange. Um, Cause I expected to have 40, but I had like 500 and it was free. I didn't charge or anything for it. And it was before worlds of Patreon and things like that. Um, anyway, if someone subscribed to the, to the newsletter, I would get an email, right? Very simple. Just, yeah. you know, came, came from like the mail list server and say, Hey, cub fan 95 at AL.com subscribe. Like that's, that's, you know, it's just keeping track. And, uh, one day I got the thing that said T Epstein at redsox.com subscribed. Whew. And I said, Oh, that's cool. Oh, I have Theo Epstein's email address. <laughs> that's really cool. And I emailed him and I said, and he's like, and he was very nice. He's like, yeah, hey, reach out to me anytime you need anything. And um, <clears throat> so now all of a sudden I had, I had access to some people and then I had some other things happen. And then like, you know, someone, I remember the second one that I got from a team was, I, I don't remember the name, but it was, you know, first initial last name at angels.com. And I'm like, I don't even know who this person is. I'm going to email him. It's like, he was a scout. And he's like, yeah, reach out anytime. And all of a sudden uh, some things started happening and it was all of a sudden it got a little industry thing. And then and a few more team people subscribed. And all of a sudden I had like 2000 subscribers. Right. And then I was still, you know, paying my bills by doing tech consulting. Um, right. And so anyway, one and I worked at home and I lived in Chicago and one day I was hungry for lunch and I went to go get uh, to go to the greasy spoon at the at six corners in Wicker Park. Uh, and I came back to my apartment and I uh, woke up my computer and I had like 42 AL instant messenger. That used to be a thing. Windows oh, yeah. flashing. And, and, and I looked at outlook and again, remember I got an email every time someone subscribed, right? And I opened up my Outlook and Outlook said downloading email one out of like 8,412 or something. <laughs> and I had all these flashing IM messages. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And um, and Peter Gammons wrote about it in his ESPN column. Ah. And it, with a quote from Theo saying, I live by this thing or something like that. Wow. And all of a sudden I had 10,000 subscribers. Um, and so uh, Baseball America hired me and bought the prospect report. I was there for a few years. Um, and then Nate Silver, who also lived in Chicago at the time, um, and I got in touch and Nate wanted to bring a, uh, someone to focus on prospect coverage to baseball prospectus. 
Um, this was, you know, I, there wasn't a whole lot of room for upward movement at Baseball America. People who are there are there forever. Um, you know, uh, this was 20 years ago, and I worked with J.J. Cooper at Baseball America. People, you know, there's yeah. not a lot of upward <laughs> movement. And um, and so this is a chance to do things the way I wanted to do them and, and completely define it. And, and I went to Baseball Prospectus for a few years and um, had a really good time there. And while I was at Baseball Prospectus, I started a podcast um, with my friend Jason Parks, who is now the director of pro scouting for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And uh, and it was a great show. And Jason was was phenomenally entertaining and, and is a wonderfully interesting person and a good friend still to this day. Um, and the podcast was like unquestionably huge. Um, it was also at a time where there was not a whole hell of a lot of other competition in the podcast world. We were kind of early adopters in the podcast world. Yeah. Um, but like when we were, you know, in the Apple podcast rankings, um, like we were up there with, with Bill Simmons. Like, you know, Jeez. it was it was big. Um, we had events and stuff where like a couple hundred people came to a bar just cause we said, Hey, we're going to a bar and if listeners want to meet up with us, great. And, and it got, it packed the place. Um, and it was a great show and it had a cult following and, and, and we had a lot of fun. It was a lot, it was a lot different, but also like the show it was long form. Um, we didn't stick to baseball. Um, we had interesting people on and talked about interesting things. Um, but anyway, around two, you know, fast forward to like 2011, the podcast is rolling. Things are good at baseball America. Uh, I'm also writing for ESPN. I also have a weekly show on MLB Network Radio. And then I, I don't, I still don't know what caused this, but there was like a flip and, and team started calling me and saying, Hey, do you want to talk? Um, and I was like, about what? And, and <laughs> you know, and they're like working for us. I'm like, that sounds insane. Um, it's nothing I ever really imagined, but like all of a sudden it was just like, I don't know. I, I like a switch flipped and, and, um, I met with one team at the winter meetings in 2011 in Dallas. I think that was Dallas. And then things really started going in 2012. Um, I was in the midst of interviewings with one team. I was talking to another. Uh, and I got a DM on Twitter from Jeff Luno saying, hey, the Astros are playing in Wrigley Field. Would you come meet with me? Um, and I was like, yeah, free ball game. Sit with the GM. That sounds like something I should probably yeah, do. Like amazing. Uh, and I went and it was kind of clear by the third interview, the, by the third inning rather, that it was a job interview. Um, <laughs> and uh, after the game, he said he'd, be in touch and and that not just like i'd be in touch like i'm going to be in touch because we'd like you i'd like you to fly to houston for a more formal discussion i was like okay um and i remember packing for that trip and and like i didn't even dress up for it i wore jeans i was like i'm not getting this job this is ridiculous that's kind of want to go through with the process um and uh and i got and they made an offer and it was kind of the best offer i had and and i said wow let's fucking do this um and so spent eight years with the Astros. Seven were really fun. Um, last year sucked. And uh, and then uh, at the end of last year, obviously, I got let go by the Astros. Um, it's fine. It's what happens. You know, new administrations come in. They want to get rid of the, the, the defense from the previous one. It's how it works. Um, I don't agree with it, but it happened. And um, kind of... Just tried to figure out what I wanted to do. Wasn't sure if I wanted to work for a team anymore. There's lots of uh, really great things about it. There are things I miss about it, uh, but also things that I do not miss about it. Um, and I was talking to some teams and talking to some some media outlets, and, and I really enjoyed my discussions with, uh, with Dave Appleman and Meg Rowley uh, a lot, and this seemed like the best place for me in terms of... Um, like the, the the way it was put to me was like yeah just come here and do what you want and that was like that's great that's what I want if I'm going to do this and um, 
not a bad offer, yeah. Yeah, and it was great, and I'm really happy to be here. And so that's like the background. So no, so Astros were the only team I worked for, and before that, I had like a media life. I was like a, yeah, I was I was, I was kind of a public figure before, so this isn't necessarily new to me. Um, but I thought I just like this email I read this. I'm like, oh god, this that, that was so long ago. You know, yeah, I, I knew I, like maybe a third of that. Yeah, like I, that was so long ago. Like people don't know, and I just assumed oh, I'm back. You know, and people go, oh, I know that guy, and people don't know this guy. And I, I, so I appreciate the email, Jack. But that's the very, that's the short version. That's what actually end up kind of long. <laughs> uh, next email comes from Kyle, and Kyle says, "Hello, Kevin, an esteemed co-host. You're oh, esteemed, esteemed now, Ben. That's impressive. Uh, I listened to Up and In, which was my last old podcast a long time ago." Uh, it was my podcast of choice for walking laps around to lose weight. Needless to say, as Texas food catches up to me, I'm very glad this is back so I can try to lose that weight again and keep it off. Uh, maybe I should just stop eating like shit, but one battle at a time. I was listening to a backlog of episodes, and I heard you mention that Anoli Paredes was an 80 makeup kind of guy. As a Paredes fan, I found this interesting, but it got me thinking about what exactly constitutes makeup. Is it the ability to work with anyone? Is it more about an individual's work ethic? It seems like it's completely subjective, but could you give us an idea of what that may mean and how much stock you put into makeup when making a decision? Um, like, first of all, there's no set definition of makeup. You could ask me what I think is important in terms of makeup and then ask someone else who's really smart about baseball and they might give you completely different answers. Um, but they'd all would agree it was important. Uh, I have been in specific team meetings where all we did was talk about what, what we care about in makeup. Um, for me, personally, like I don't really, I, I don't think makeup has to do with necessarily a morality. I don't think makeup has to do with good politics. If you're looking for that in baseball players, you're going to not be able to create a roster. And um, I care about uh, their obsession with baseball and their obsession with getting better at baseball. Um, that is makeup to me, uh, people who, who love the game in the right way and also are obsessed with getting better at it. That's, that's the kind of makeup that, that you care about in terms of kind of prospects. There's a couple other pieces you look like for in big leagues. Um, and, and we would do makeup digs like for trade targets, like, Oh, you know, we're looking at this guy in a trade. Let's, it's more about like, how's he going to fit into the clubhouse? Is he going to drive our manager crazy? Um, that kind of thing. But for the most part for makeup, especially like in the draft and, and, and that kind of thing and acquiring prospects it's, is, you know, what's this guy's work ethic? Like, does he love baseball and does he love working at baseball as much as he loves playing baseball? Is he, is he driven to be better? Is that kind of drive there? Um, and he might be an asshole away from that, but that's what I care about. So you'd give Andrew Luck a red flag. I don't know who that is. He, he was like the, the best quarterback draft prospect ever, but he really wanted to be an architect. Really? And he ended up retiring from football young. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, a more, uh, you know, baseball-centric one is J.D. Drew. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember, and this might, you know, this is the kind of stuff here, but if someone said to me about J.D. Drew, he's fantastic at baseball, but I'm not even sure he likes baseball. You know, and, and it's it's that kind of thing. So you think someone um, could have great makeup and not like baseball, but just be obsessed with perfecting their craft? Oh, for sure. I think there's tons of people like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. The paint guy. Um, there's a the paint guy at, at the hardware store we go to. Uh, I don't know, think there's a person in the world who loves paint more than this guy. 
Like he's <laughs> like he gets so if you want, hey, we're coming here to we want to paint something. He gets so excited. And he wants to talk about what you're doing and talk about all the different kind of paints and the chemicals that go into it and 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 making it and have this paint. And he's just obsessed with it and and has just this unbridled joy about it. He's got eighty makeup when it comes to paint. <laughs> you got eighty makeup about anything. Um, and so I think that's the that's the. That's what I look at. Other people do care more about. I don't know how you want to put it. Um, some of the, the the choir boy stuff, if you will. Um, you know, I don't want uh, you know to like totally dismiss criminality, but yeah. like you I basically really... mean the Larusa quote about Andrew Vaughn. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I really. Don't, I kind of don't care if the you know in terms of making my team better. If the guy goes out after the game, I don't care. You know. Plays the game the right way. Yeah, that kind of thing. Good I just, quiet yeah. boy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care about any of that. Is he is he obsessed with baseball and does he want to get better at baseball? Um next email comes from a different Kyle. It's Kyle Day. And Kyle says, When constructing a bullpen, how much attention is paid to complementary delivers arm slots and pitch repertoires? Right, left aside, is there any quantifiable value in assembling pitchers with a bunch of different looks, or would you build an entire bullpen out of guys of similar styles if they were all equally effective? Um, this is, I, I kind of talked about this already, so I feel like I kind of ruined it, um, in the first section when we talked about the Rays, but, um, you know, we all saw during the World Series last year, that graphic they had all the time with the clock and the different arm angles that the Rays presented yeah. bullpen wise. Um, and that stuff does matter. Um, but even, so again, I talked about this earlier, like even matters even more. You do want different repertoires. You do want different abilities and it goes, it does go well beyond just your standard platoons. You know, I know. You know, if you play Stratomatic or, or OOTP or whatever, like you're very obsessed with platoons for good reasons and teams are too, but it, advanced stuff kind of goes beyond that. And, and you're talking about, you know, there are splits that matter beyond just left, right in terms of guys inability to hit uh, fly ball, you know, ground ball, fly ball, ground ball, um, inside, outside, um, sinker, breaker, that kind of thing. And so you do want to be able to, to provide different weapons against different hitters based on those kind of splits as well. So you would not want an entire bullpen out of guys with similar styles, even if they were all effective, because you, you can't provide that consistent look. You do want to change looks up. It does matter um, in, in very specific pitcher-hitter matchups. So I have a good example of this, actually. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't know this, but Jesse Winker has faced uh, Adrian Hauser, I think, like 13 times, and he has five home runs. I, yeah, I, I think I saw two of his three. It was over the weekend, right? Yeah. Um, I feel comfortable saying that Jesse Winker is a pretty good sinker hitter. Uh, like, mm-hmm. If you had a bullpen exclusively of like just really effective, like, you know, these Dodger style with these like power sinkers, like you'd probably want to have a different guy to bring in mm-hmm. against Winker because he's probably good at hitting sinkers. Uh like everything about his entire career has just said that like if you throw a sinker he'll just destroy it, and yeah like I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense like I would, I'm not shocked by that I don't totally buy the bullpen arm thing. Look, uh, you mean the clock? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's not as important as as the actual repertoire. Itself. But I totally buy that. Like, like you can't tell me that you watch a baseball game and you don't think that there are guys that hit certain types of pitches well. Like, of course there are. Right. And, and it's funny because like, you know, I know in general and I understand the thinking about it and it's not complete. It's not 100 percent wrong. But like the fact that like uh, pitcher versus batter sets don't matter because too small a sample and, and all that kind of thing. Um, it is too small a sample for you to really be able to analyze it. But some of it is real. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's, you know, Jesse Winker having five home runs against Adrian Hauser is not 
him rolling the dice and coming up to 10 yeah. five times. Like it's not, it's not pure luck. Right. Um, there's a reason for that. And I, I, sometimes that stuff does matter. And, you know, I never really care if a guy's like, you know, four for seven with a double right. or, or oh for seven with four strikeouts. But when it's, once you know it's five home runs and twenty something at bats, you start to go, oh, maybe something's up here, and there's something he does that this guy just that works well for this guy. Yeah, um, uh, you said twenty something at bats. I think it's like literally less than fifteen. <laughs> yeah, even more so. Yeah, um, back in the day, Bobby Bonilla had numbers against Tom Browning that were just unbelievable, um, and it wasn't. It was it was real. He for whatever reason, I'm sure we could figure it out with modern data. He destroyed Tom Browning. Yeah, just destroyed him. There's some guy who faced uh, Rivera, like Mariano Rivera, like 45 times and had one hit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I think that's real. Yeah, it's real. You can't hit it. You can't, you can't hit it. Um, if you could. Uh, our final email comes from Patrick. Are you sitting down? I am, but uh, readers, you should too. If you're listening to this, you should be sitting down. Like if you're driving, pull over the car. Um, if you're listening to this and you're walking laps to lose weight, take a break. Go sit in the bleachers for a second. Patrick says, hello, hello, my imaginary internet friend, Mr. Kevin. I hope this electronic letter finds you and yours well and good. I'm currently sitting on my couch trying to recreate the famous Doc Ellis electric no-no. I have consumed a solid 250 micrograms of the best LSD in the country. Side note, this vial has made its way around the world and somehow ended up back in my hands. Long story. Anyway... I have been trying to recreate this amazing achievement for years now. It's absolutely impossible. I'm sitting on my couch, mashing buttons, and the farthest I've gotten, I assume he's playing the video game, which he is, the farthest I've gotten is six innings without allowing a hit. I was down eight to nothing in that game. Walks, hit batters, fielding errors, wild pitches galore. I should get to my question for you and whatever New York co-host you have this week. San Francisco, actually, which probably makes a question about acid even better. Do you believe the story of the Doc Ellis LSD no-hitter? Is it myth? Is it a fairy tale for those that enjoyed altered states of consciousness? I understand he was eating handfuls of speed before and during the game, which I assume helped, but I just can't believe it as much as I would love to. I find myself lost and unable to focus, and like I said previously, I'm sitting comfortably on my couch playing random slapdicks on MLB The Show 21. I can't imagine succeeding in a stadium full of people watching. Only my cats are watching me fail. I feel like I'm rambling. If you've read this far, I'm not sure what to think. I should get back to my mission. Peace and love and positive vibes in this garbage capitalist society we call home. Patrick. First of all, Patrick, you're doing God's work, and I wish you would do this on Twitch because I would watch. <laughs> um, I have not done acid since I was... 19 and my friend jeremy r.i.p and i did acid and went to a michael dukakis rally interesting interesting choice <laughs> and, um, so i don't it, it's tough for me to relate i've always believed the doc ellis story just because i didn't i don't think he had any sort of reason not to make that up you know what i mean like yeah. what's the what's the benefit of that especially so, given the time like now we're like oh what a great story but i don't think that yeah. was a popular thing that he did it you know? Right. And so like I did there's no there's no incentive for him not to not to have done it real. So I've always bought the Doc Ellis no no. I think the handfuls of speed played a role in helping him. Um but I can't imagine throwing a no hitter in, in that state. Uh, but I think Doc did. Have you ever 
Have you seen have you, have you seen the documentary about the Doc Ellis? No, no, I need to see it. It's wonderful. It's really, really good. But yeah, the dude threw a no hitter uh, while on LSD. Uh, and Patrick, if you're going to continue to use LSD, I, 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 I recommend you continue to try because I think you can do it. I would say that also it's it's a lot different than well, first of all, your fielders are not presumably also on LSD in this <laughs> example, so you don't have to play all the players. So right, that's a good point. That's part of your problem is you're also trying to catch the ball. But also presumably your uh, level of familiarity with this game is slightly less than Doc Ellis's level of familiarity with pitching. Uh, it's probably a bit more instinctual for him than it is for you to play uh, the show. I mean, I don't know how many hours you've put into the show. I, it could be a bunch. I'm, I'm not saying that you haven't. But you know, Doc Ellis pitched his whole life, and presumably he got pretty good at doing those things, like going through the motions without having to be extremely focused on, like, okay, I need to pitch here. I'm sure right, this was this was second nature for him yeah, at this point. I'm sure that more of his focus was on like the sky is green. <laughs> That's not right. <sighs> so uh during the Dukakis rally, um as as what happened at a political rally, at some point people were waiting for him to come up and speak and they were chanting, We want Mike, we want Mike, right? As you'd expect at a political rally. Um, and Jeremy, for Jeremy, because he was on acid, uh, they were all pointing at him and saying, Jeremy, Jeremy. <laughs> um, but he's used to, Patrick says he's been trying this for years. Um, if you've ever thrown a no-hitter on acid, email the podcast. It is chinmusic at fangraphs.com. And thank you for sending us an entertaining email, Patrick. Do you think we'd accept uh, on a video game? I think I would. He said, I mean, he said in the email he's been trying for years. And again, Patrick, I, I, I beg of you to start a Twitch channel yeah. in which you do this because I would, I would fucking tune into that thing constantly. I would watch it at least once. Yeah, to see if you can do it. And we're rooting for you, Patrick. Um, but yeah, let us know. Keep us updated. Uh, you say you've been trying for years. So I assume this is going to continue. Um, and, and, you know, when you, when you, you know, get past six innings and get to seven innings, let us know. Um, but keep us updated on, on, on your, uh, Kixotic quest. Ben, it's time to catch up with you. Perfect. I am not on acid playing the show right now. So, Do you play the show? No. You have a PS5. We talked about this off air. You have a PS5 that you don't play. I have a PS5 that I don't play. Um, not never, but not enough. Uh, and obviously, I public, your, you play a lot of OOTP out of the park, which is a, you know, a pure sim. Yeah. I, that, I'm not a big, uh, like online games player no i find it weird that i have to connect to the internet to play my video games when i want to escape from the world uh and i out of the park kind of does that for me some Mm -hmm. because you're not actually like like testing your quick twitch reactions against someone else uh right i play a lot of video games and i do absolutely no kind of online competitive stuff it's a it's a cesspool i but that i want nothing to do with and i do want that escape yeah um i i play everything i play is just single player ditto um but yeah uh let's see what about me what are we catching up on so but you're out of the you you the, the, the fun thing about the out of the park game is that a lot of your out of the park world is public yes yeah i you, like i like that part of it um you come up with little experiments and say you know and i joined you for like what if the the rays drafted buster posey and then we played the season out as with posey and posey's rookie year and things like that and you, you come up with the experiments. Have you? Do you feel like you've ever 
Do you feel like they're pure fun? Or have you ever, do you ever feel like you've learned something? Um, that is a, I think they're mostly pure fun. I think one thing that it has really kind of instilled in me, and look, I don't know if this is like, because it's gained me a greater appreciation for life or because I'm an idiot who mistakes the game engine of a video game for real life. (laughs) (laughs) You, You, the, you, Kevin, or you, the listener can decide on that. But I think it's really instilled in me some respect for the fact that edges are just really small. And yeah, like, I don't know, it's easy to tell these narratives of like, you know, this great success and this great failure. And the fact is that particularly like at these days in baseball, everyone's really, really, really good. And everyone's trying really hard and the edges are small and guys that you think are just complete failures are actually really good and they might be a complete success next year. And the things that matter are just much smaller than you notice. Now, right. part of that is because like baseball's like that, but I do find it like, like just seeing uh, like, Hey, this guy that I know went into the sim rated well, had like a really crap year. And then like, like that definitely could have happened in real life. And I yeah. like, and because it didn't, I'm like, Oh, I live in, I live in a world <laughs> Uh, we live in a world. <laughs> we live in a world where Buster Posey was really good, and we came to the Giants. And but that could have happened differently. And I don't know. Like I think it gives me a lot more kind of respect for just like how just seriously good all these people are, and how thin the, the margins are. Yeah, I, I will say the one thing I learned, I think, the most during my eight years uh, working for a team was how good these guys are. Um, and they are insanely good. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how good they are at baseball. Um, they're terrifyingly good, uh, and nothing will nothing will dissuade me from that notion. Um, now you said you worked in finance for a long time, and now you write about baseball. Um, where you at in a sense? Like this is what you're doing right now. Yeah. Do you do you is your life like this is where I want this to go? Or is your life just like what am I writing about tomorrow? Oh no, or, or is it somewhere between those two things? Um, I think it's much closer to the this is where I want to go. Um, so I yeah I worked for a bank for a while and for a hedge fund, and one of the things that I really missed in that switch uh, was that I didn't really get to write. I used to write like a theoretically a like what's happening in the mar- in my particular market today, uh, like basically email like a mailing list that went Mm -hmm. out to all of our clients. And it was like just an excuse to write comedy, essentially. It was not particularly focused on, like forget the market that I was working in, like was not particularly focused on finance or actual things that you'd care about at work. It was mostly just jokes and like pop culture references and stuff. And I loved it. And I liked, as it turns out, I liked that a lot more than other parts of the job. Uh, (laughs) And so after working... uh, Did you study that in school? Not writing, but like finance stuff? Uh, yeah. Does econ count? I don't know. I don't know anything about that world. Yeah. I would say not really. I took a class on, um, on auction theory. So like how, uh, like how differently designed auctions can incentivize or disincentivize the winners and stuff. Mm. And I found that really interesting. It's like a subset of game theory that really applies to markets and probably applies a lot to like baseball too. Yeah, for Um, sure. Like trade, like GMing. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, free agent is an auction. Exactly. Um, And that's kind of like the class that I took where I was like, oh, this is really useful. But mostly aside from that, it was like vocational learning and the college was a waste aside from how much fun I had drinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
<laughs> don't tell my mom that if she's listening. No. Hi, uh, mom. Uh, but yeah, I would say, like, I didn't really go to school for it. I actually, I was interning at uh, a lab in the town where I grew up, uh, a DOE lab that did a bunch of econometric research on whether biofuel was going to work. Like, What in, town is this? Uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Okay. So it's where they built, it's where they enriched all the uranium for the Manhattan Project. And then after that, they were just like, well, we have like a lot of uh, factories and secret bases. And also we've moved 60,000 scientists here. And so I guess we're just going to be like a research site. And so now they like split neutrons and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. not split neutrons, I don't think, but fire neutrons through a giant accelerator cannon. And I was doing biofuel research there. And I decided, oh, like that's not really what I want to do for my life. It pays very little. I'm going to try to go make some money for a summer. Uh, <laughs> took a job at a bank because that paid a lot of money for uh, an internship and stuck with it for 10 years, 11 years. But then I don't know. Like I wanted to write and I was writing about baseball for free uh, on a SB Nation website. Just like literally moonlighting, writing from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. like twice a week. <laughs> Just about the Cardinals, because mm-hmm. I, I liked mm-hmm. writing. And then I decided I was going to quit my job with no other plans aside from moving out to San Francisco with my wife. Uh, she got a job out here, and I was like, whatever, I'm just going to stop working at this hedge fund and like figure out what I'm going to do in a few years. And it just so happened that Fangraphs was uh, hosting one of these like open audition calls. Yeah. So I submitted some of my work, but like mainly just because I wanted to get an interview and like talk to these people. And maybe in two years, I'd have enough work to get hired. And I think it's kind of similar to you. I talked to Megan Appleman and they were like, yeah, we'd like to hire you. And I wasn't doing anything else. <laughs> I, was, I was coordinating our move to San Francisco, but you know, her company paid for the move. So I wasn't doing much. I was like, great, let's do this. I, you know, I thought of Fangraphs as a place that I read, not where I would work. And I don't know. It's gone really well so far. And I mean, if you, if this is where it is, it's great. But like, do you have a, longer term thing like do you want to write a book do you want to um i don't know if i want to write a book someday i i really enjoy like the the idea of like it's fun to look for interesting stuff it's fun that people like reading about me looking for interesting stuff and i like kind of like perfecting my craft and just continuing on that front uh i do sometimes wish that like there there was more there were more projects that we did you know, because mm-hmm. it, it really is kind of a like week to week, day to day kind of job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that those are the only jobs I've ever had. I've never had jobs with long term projects. Like that just wasn't. Eh, I've had jobs with longer term projects than this, but it's just not conducive to uh, to like market based jobs because stuff's just changing so often. Right. Um. So I, I kind of like sometimes want to do stuff like that, but I'm enjoying it for now. And I don't know. Like I I like writing. I like the fact that people enjoy reading it. For sure. And yeah, I don't know. Like, I do, I do think it's funny that everyone's like, oh, like, you know, everyone writes at Fangraphs because they want to go work for a team. I've heard that a bunch. Yeah, like, I know. Yeah, of come course. on, man. Like, <laughs> this seems like not the best way to do that if you wanted to go work <laughs> for a team. <laughs> um, what are you working on right now? Uh, right now, I am going to write about how just hilariously cursed the Yankees and Mets are. Uh, and I was just looking up their injury history before we started this podcast. And oh, good lord, Jesus! Like the Mets lineup is just—they. I was watching. I turned to the Mets game, 
and there was a guy named Drury in right field, and I couldn't see his face, just as the back of his jersey. And I was like, Brandon Drury doesn't play the outfield. So, like, this is some other Drury? <laughs> like, like, what is going on here? I don't even know who this guy is. And it turns out, like, where was he even playing? I just... Right. They've just... They're scraping the bottom of the barrel for just whoever they can possibly find. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's sad. Uh, I, had an, I had an interesting uh, exchange on Twitter with, with uh, Matt Winkleman, who's at BP. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just about, like, with all the injuries. So, obviously, you have 40-man rosters, right? Yeah. If you had 14 guys on the disabled list, which doesn't sound as insane as it once did. Yeah. And so, you had 14, and then you had 26 active players, and another guy got hurt. What would your options be? So, um, you could transfer somebody to the 60, right? Transfer somebody to the 60 to free up a spot. <laughs> But they would have to be. You can't. You can't manipulate the sixty. Like the player has to be right. injured to a point where he is appropriate for the sixty-day disabled list. You can't just move a guy to the sixty, even if he's only, if he's only going to be hurt for three weeks. Yeah. you can't do that. You can't um, demote. You can't take somebody off the forty when they're on the IL, right? Right. Can you trade somebody who's on the IL? Yes, and you can also release them. Ugh. That's 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 the, that's where you'd be stuck at. You'd have to be doing something like that. I mean, I, you know, obviously, I think you know, not, not all unless there was some sort of like bench clearing brawl that involved a chainsaw. They didn't all go on the DL at the same time, right? Right. So at some point, you think your days would work out for you. Um, you can also um, you can play with twenty five players. Yeah, that if, seems if like you, something that major so, league teams would like doing. Yeah, if you so choose, you can play with twenty five. I mean, I you guess can't the Phillies with, are playing with like twenty three for a while. So. Yeah, you can't play. You can't play with less than twenty five, but you can play with twenty five. Um, oh, interesting. So, may, so you really so you couldn't can, submit a twenty four man roster. You can't. No. Huh. Twenty five is the minimum. So wait, what if you were just like, but let's say that uh, you get a sixteenth guy hurt. You would have to do something dramatic. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem. It seems to me like enough of the injuries that we're seeing recently are long term that you'd have some of these guys on the sixty. But yeah, but it, but if they're not again, like if they're not, you can't you can't manipulate yeah, the sixty. Right. Like if they're not, if the, if the if the injury isn't sixty day appropriate, right? A the player's never going to go for because they need to play so they can make their money, right? Yeah, this is um, different for, than the like future money, the Dodgers yeah. phantom IL stuff. Yeah, this is not just giving someone a sixty blow. is like very two uh, months, a long time. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you're not going to go on the 60 unless you're really going to be out for 60. Um, and so, yeah, you'd have to do something really dramatic. You'd have to, you know, make a trade. Yeah. Um, the other thought, was, of course, would be just that, you know, maybe someone, you know, on the 26 is optionable and you could do something with that. But um, <laughs> it's a numbers game. Like, you, you could. It's a real weird numbers game. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, but yeah, you'd have to do something really dramatic. You'd have, to, you'd have to flat out release a guy. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing you could do. Is if a guy is has been on it for ten days, but he's not ready to come back, you could activate him, right? Because uh, because he's going to be back in three days. Yeah, yeah. You could activate him and have him sit there on the bench, or no, I guess like yeah, I was going to say you activate him and DFA him. <laughs> like right, who's going to agree to that? Right, I guess nobody. Right, you'd get you'd you'd, you'd you'd they'd file a grievance. Yeah, like, hey man, that, we need that you, that you did this. Right, you did this because I was hurt. Um, it feels like we're like it's still a lot, right? Like fifteen is just that's a lot of players. I, but yeah, I mean the Mets. I think last I looked had fourteen guys, but again, some of those guys were sixty, so they weren't taking up a forty man spot. Yeah, but it's getting close. Yeah, it's getting real close. But it was interesting 
just theoretical. It was a fun theoretical to think about. I don't know. It's fun, but interesting. All of a sudden, it actually felt almost realistic. Um, oh, my so, uh, God. I'm looking at this. Jeez. Yeah. Everyone's hurt. Jose Martinez. I did not even know he was. Yeah. Uh, he might be over 60, but. I think yeah. he is, yeah. Jeez. Um, uh, time for a moment of culture, Ben. Unless we get away from baseball and talk about culture. Um, I'm going to talk about a movie that is on Hulu. And I've been saying that a lot lately. And Hulu in the last few months has. Like, like Hulu was always seen as like the place where you catch up on TV shows. Hulu over the last couple of months has really, in the past, like their movie selection was like a bunch of bad Hollywood '90s films you never wanted to see again. Um, and you know, it's like, oh, they have The Witches of Eastwick and Back to the Future Seven. Um, a Bug's they, Life, they, Ants, A Bug's Life. Yeah, but but they really have over the last few months like acquired, and I think some of this is pandemic related. These films didn't have an opportunity to make money in in small theaters. They've obtained like a lot of interesting little indie films and tons of interesting recent foreign stuff. And all of a sudden, like Hulu is a place to watch really good movies. It's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. And it makes, uh, it makes me like Hulu better. Uh, I was thinking of like, like unsubscribing a few months ago and now I would not do that. But um, talked about a movie called border a couple episodes ago. Um, it's another foreign film that's on there. That was actually, um, I think, in the in the Academy Award nominations for best foreign film, it's a Dutch film called Another Round. Have you heard about this? I have not. It's really really good. Highly recommend it. Dutch film called Another Round, and this is a movie about uh, a group of teachers at a school. I don't know if it's a public or a private school, but it's a really nice school. I just I don't know if it's just private schools are really nice or just it's another country and they actually respect public education, so it's really nice. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the teachers talks about a theory by a philosopher that. Um, the human bloodstream doesn't have enough alcohol in it and it's actually 0.05% under the alcohol it should be in. And so if you can maintain a 0.05 blood alcohol level, which is two glasses of wine, um, and you know, so just a, a little tipsy, if you will, um, that your life will be better. You will operate better. You'll work better. Your interactions with other people will be more positive and that everything will be better in your life. It's like, so they just like the Vollmer peak. Yes. And so they decide to see if this is true and they start their day and they start and, and you don't drink after eight o'clock at night. This is, you just function during your day uh, at, at 0.05 tipsy. Uh, and they start, you know, they wake up and they have a couple of drinks and they, they, they sneak alcohol into work and have a drink and they maintain their 0.05 um, and it works and their lives are better. Huh. Um, and then because this is how the world works, because we live in a world, as you know. Um, they decide to, well, what if, what if we went to from 0. 0.05 to 0. 0.1 <laughs> and they go to 0. 0.1 and then things, various things from there go out of control, but it's very well done. It's, it's treated with humor and, and you know, frankly, honestly, it's like, there's like an honesty to it in the sense that like, you know, it's not some sort of like alcoholism is bad piece, but there are bad aspects to drinking a lot, but they also have some real positive things about it too. Um, and I thought, I thought it struck the balance incredibly well. It's very well acted. It's well, it's it's funny and 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 not funny when it doesn't have to be or when it doesn't need to be, maybe more accurately. Um, but I understand why it was an Academy Award nominee. It's a it's a really well done film. That sounds great. And I have Hulu, so I'm gonna be checking it out. Yeah, another round uh, on Hulu. What do you got, Ben? So mine is actually about something that's on Hulu, although it is 
uh, meaningfully different. So I have never been much of a cooking person. Much of a what person? A cooking person. Like my whole cooking. life, okay. I've never done much. Yeah, yeah, cooking. yeah. I, okay. You know, I don't really have a good excuse for why not, but it's just never my thing. Yeah. And at the start of the pandemic, my wife got me to start watching Top Chef, which you can watch sure. on Hulu. Um, yes. All the old seasons. And we were just doing nothing, right? Like just sitting at home, like riding out the pandemic and burning yeah, through entertainment options. Yes. When you're done eating dinner during the pandemic, it's like you're done eating dinner. It's like, okay, now what are we going to do before we fall asleep? Right. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, we live in California, so uh, it does help that weed is legal here. Uh, so that that made there be more options for what to do. But there was just still like just a huge entertainment ba- vacuum. And there's this huge back catalog of Top Chef. And so I started watching it. And A, it turns out it's incredible. Like, it is if you watch a cooking show for enough time, then seeing the people compete at their craft will make you want to do it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe not like the first two seasons. I, I'd maybe skip those because they were still finding their stride and finding people who were actually good chefs who wanted to come on. But I think in the last year or so, through watching 10 seasons of Top Chef, I've gone from not enjoying cooking and enjoyed doing this process, by the way, to like wanting to cook and making my own sauces and trying yeah. to like copy off of things that, I've done, that they've done on the show and wondering, oh, why doesn't that work? Why does this work? And now I feel like I have very strong opinions about food. We went out to a restaurant in San Francisco recently called Ernest. Oh, did you did you eat indoors? Uh, not yet. But okay, yeah, because we haven't done that yet. Yeah, I have not done that yet either. I've um, there's a place near me with like a semi enclosed patio where it's like okay, it's theor- like it's glassed in, but, but some the windows are open. In. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, we went there and it's a I don't know. It is a nice restaurant. It is not you know a linear or whatever like one of these like incredibly fanciest restaurants in the world. It's a nice restaurant. And median median entree price, $20 to $30 yeah, where are we at? 20 to 25, which okay. is maybe 30, but that that that's like in San Francisco 30 is like a you know, a Chicago 25 maybe. Yeah, yeah, the entree at Denny's is $15 in San Francisco. I got you. <laughs> right. Um and the food was just like it's more enjoyable for having watched a bunch of shows about like what people are looking for in the taste of the food, what they're looking for when they cook it. And I think if you're a person who wishes you cooked more or like just or doesn't wish they cooked more but doesn't cook much, that watching some type of cooking show and not a cooking show where it's a gimmick, you know, not chopped or like beat body flay or one of these things where they're doing some gimmick, watching a cooking show where they take really good chefs and they basically have them explain what they're cooking and the judges give them notes will improve your desire to cook in a way that like yeah it's a tv show but i think it's actually greatly improved my life how much more i am looking for what to cook and enjoying actually doing it and i'm sure it's greatly improved my wife's life because i'm not a complete like nothing who just wants to eat out every night now right we we my wife and i both cook um and enjoy cooking and and i also probably got into it from watching television but um, yeah, our, our general pandemic life was cook six nights a week and order delivery one. Yeah, we at the start of the pandemic, we were like three delivery four cook. And then right. we got to six one like within two or three months because basically because I started pulling my weight. Yeah, we just, <laughs> we just wanted to do yeah, we wanted to do six one or we thought we we're just gonna go broke. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it's but we both like cooking and, and but I, I do like Top Chef. It's it's 
I do think Top you're right. I think Top Chef would make you want to cook more than other shows. Yeah, I think that that's the key for me is like I watched my fair share of like Great British Bake Off. I love that show. Um very enjoyable. It's the most wonderfully positive thing in the world. Yeah, and never once made me want to bake. Like right. <laughs> it just didn't make me do it. It made me like, oh, these British people are lovely. Like, man, the words <laughs> they say are hilarious. And like Mary Berry is great and old. But it never made me want to bake. I watched Top Chef. Man, I can't believe they call every cookie biscuit. Right. It's so yeah. hilarious. <laughs> and like, oh, they're helping each other. It's great. Top Chef makes me want to like do what they're doing. And right. so I would say if you want to be cultured, not just in a like watching things that are culturally relevant, but like being a person who can cook, a good way to do it is by sitting on your couch. Okay. So my wife and I come to the Bay Area, which we will be doing in a couple months. Oh, nice. And you have us over for dinner, and you want to cook us a nice meal, like the thing you make the best. What do you make it? Ooh, that's a good one. That is a, let's see. I think probably it would be some kind of, like, tofu and veggie dish that's been, eh, probably like stir-fried with Asian sauces of some type. I think... Are you are you a, a veggie person? Are you a vegetarian? or? I don't eat very much red meat. Okay. Uh, and I find that a lot of times if you're going to make something that is like really kind of like like soy and rice vinegar heavy, yeah. that tofu is a really good pairing with that. Like it mm. soaks up a lot of it. I yes. I was like making kind of a lazy like meal prep for lunch today and made like, like a similar-ish kind of dressing. Or not dressing, like sauce, and I did it with chicken sausage, and the chicken sausage just had too much flavor and, like, didn't... So I didn't get the full effect of the sauce, and I feel like tofu does a good job of that. Um, now, I don't know if that if that's, if that's, like, one of my go-tos. I'll have to get back to you on whether that's actually, like, the best thing I make, but it's the thing that is I'd be most comfortable making. Nice. I think we're done here, Ben. Yeah, I, I feel good about that one. I was thinking about doing <laughs> some, like marginal like here's a band i like and i realized that talking about getting better at cooking was more fun to me everyone should everyone should cook more it's it's it's, it's i find it cathartic totally agree. um but th- ben thank you for co-hosting for the second time yeah and and, and for your first time on on let's call it a standard show yeah well we hope to have you back soon uh thanks to mr x for coming on talking to us about the horrible world of public defenders Thanks to Cocaine Piss for providing the fantastic music, and we'll talk to you next week.